Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. All right, season of Spoop. Yep. First episode. First one. Let's do it. Here we go. Hell yeah. All right. So, uh, w- did we get a guest for this one or is it just me and you? No, it can't be just me and you, especially with this movie. No way. All right. Hold on. We need a guest. Who can we get at the last minute? Okay. Hold on. I know. Okay. I'll trust you. Wait. Is that a is that a mirror? Yes. All right. Hold on. It looks like the mirror from Oculus. What do you do with that? It is. Uh, don't worry about it. I, I'm recording myself. It's fine. Okay, here we go. Kelly Sherman. Kelly Sherman. Kelly Sherman? Kelly Sherman. Kelly Sherman. Be my victim. Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, all right. The lady appeared on her video chat on Riverside. What is this? <laughs> Welcome to 2023, I guess. I'm here, y'all. I made it. Always scares <laughs> me in that first moment. But yeah, cool. All right, cool. We got a guest. Here we go. The hell mouth opens and he appears on our, our Riverside. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, yeah, we uh, are going to be talking motherfucking candy man finally <laughs> for our season of spoop opener for this year of our lord age of 2023 i think the dollop podcast calls him j-town <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah so theme of this year's season of spoop is gonna be urban legends and we've got a cool chunk of movies lined up for you and yes we're well aware that there is a late 90s slasher urban legend it's not on our scheduled slate of maybe season spoof movies on urban legends (laughs) but who knows it's definitely in the backup in case one of these falls through i can't say that we won't do a commentary for the second movie even though we've not covered the first movie because guess what they have nothing to do with each other (laughs) and the second movie is batshit so maybe we'll see i don't know but yeah we're gonna be covering Candyman for our first movie. I bet anybody that looks at a calendar can guess what we'll do for our second movie. And then our third movie for this month, uh, we're not going to tell you guys until we're there. But uh, hit anyway, him with the intro. Enough of that. You didn't do the intro to our own show. What? Whatever. <laughs> Watch if you dare. Horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, Aaron, the movie monster boy. We discuss fears, phobia, social relevancy. Especially on this episode, we need to discuss social relevancy <laughs> of horror movies across all ages and subgenres and discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like myself and horror junkies like Aaron and Kelly alike. There, there's our intro. But, intros, yes. whatever. If you're listening to this <laughs> and you haven't been listening this whole time, what are you doing? Cool. Yeah. So, Kelly, happy to have you back. Yeah. How you been, man? It's been really good. You hit one big episode after another because we had you on for the original Evil Dead, and now we have you on for Candyman. Hell yeah. Boom, boom. When I tell people, yeah, I'm on some friends' podcasts and tell them about the podcast and shit, I'm like, I'm hitting the bangers, yo. 
I'm getting all the all the bangers. Uh, yeah, you really are. You, so I'm very fortunate. We joke that Shelby gets like all the duds and that we wind <laughs> up making fun of and you're getting all the banger movies. Well, I appreciate y'all. I, I'm very, uh, you know, very fortunate that I get to talk about some of my favorites. So awesome. Note to uh, past, present and future guests. This is how you do it. You got to put your fucking stake on whatever movie you want to claim. And be like, this is mine. This is what I'm doing. Because <laughs> we'll yeah. put you on there. We will put your name beside that title. Because Kelly's very yeah. good at being like, I want this. So guess what? <laughs> Here we are. We're doing Candyman. Fuck Excited. yeah. I've been waiting on this one for a minute. Yeah. So normally we do our recommendation section. We're still going to do that. But guess what? Derek and I don't really have any recommendations because we've both been busy. Yeah. So Kelly... We always start with a guest anyway. Here you go. What have you been uh, watching lately? Movies, TVs, books, comics, video games. What you've been up to horror-wise lately? Well, definitely going to be two horror projects. One is a film. One is a TV show. Hell yeah. The movie, that's it's just in my head right now. It's Talk to Me. You're the third time this came up on our show. Hell yeah. Okay. All right. Well. No, yeah. Go get into it, man. Well, no. I'm just, I'm a big <laughs> fan of the Philip Brothers. And uh, I don't know if y'all are familiar with, I think it was Raka Raka. That was their YouTube channel. Yep. I mean, they had billions, billions of views. To go from a YouTube content creator to making probably one of the most inventive, innovative, and dopest indie horror films in the last decade, that's incredible. They really did the thing. Talk to me is incredible. Just for everyone listening, so it actually released today on all VOD streaming sites. Oh, wait, that soon? It's out, bro. Came out today. Oh, shit. And okay, all right. It's Blu-ray and 4K UHD October 17th. I don't normally okay. like push as hard as I do, but A24 is just in my blood right now. So I'm giving a little free advertising for A24. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third time they're getting an advert because it's, this movie, I need to watch this movie. It's almost as if A24 should you know occasionally sponsor our show just uh, yeah i mean wink wink, 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 wink. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> listening works for a24 have y'all seen it yet i have y'all watch yes. it yet? aaron has yeah yeah eric when you get to it bro it is it's good i'll keep it moving so second thing just was visiting my girlfriend last night we had saw the trailer weeks ago and i was like we gotta watch this so it just released i think last friday but this weekend i was busy so anyway went to visit her last night the Changeling on Apple TV Plus. Would you even know? There's no sun up in the sky. If you crossed into a fairy tale. Stormy weather. A storm is coming. There are portals in this world that we may never know we've trespassed through. Where my wife is. People don't just disappear. Witches. You don't see, but you will. Have y'all heard of it? That's the one with Lakeith, right? Lakeith Stanfield. Okay. Yes. I yeah. don't think I realized that that was horror. I thought that that was a drama. That's 100% horror. It's not a remake of the George C. Scott movie, is it? No. Okay. So, and, and my notes were not connected at all to the 1980 George C. Scott. Okay. Or the 2008 
Clint Eastwood film Changeling instead of The yeah. Changeling. It's adapted from a 2017 fantasy horror novel by Victor Laval. And I had never heard of it before. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't heard of this either. So there's three episodes currently available. Me and my lady watched the first two and we are hooked. It is so good. For people listening and for you two, as far as thematically and just tonally, it reminds me of Lovecraft Country a little bit. Okay. As far as how it's unveiling story and characters to the audience. High on my recommendation. What's the uh, general premise of it? <sighs> so I know I'm putting you on the spot. Well, <laughs> no, no. And, and I could easily answer it. So I'll tell you all this much. What IMD puts as the synopsis and what the novel puts as a synopsis, the first two episodes haven't even gotten to yet. So uh, okay. it's very, very hard okay. to talk about it. But if I threw anything at you, it revolves around a relationship between two people. Deals with trauma, but how trauma and our own like genial history kind of how they come hand in hand at, at times. Interesting. Okay. That's all I can really say. But Lakeith is top notch. He's so good. Well, and it's interesting with these two recommendations bringing it up on this episode too, because there's the argument that talked to me the premise of that is an urban legend that turns out to be true between the porcelain hand. Yeah. I mean, it goes around parties with young people and then. The idea of generational trauma. I mean, we're going to get all into that when we talk about Candyman. Like. And that's the word I was looking for, like generational. The way that they weave the story so far in the first two episodes of uh, The Changeling, it's so good. And, you know, I, I got to get my, my hats off to that whole production team. Cool. Who is behind this show? Who directed it? Who wrote it? Who's making this? I have the Wikipedia page. It's created and written by Kelly Marcel. The first episode uh, is directed by Melina Matsukas. Okay. Oh, she did Queen is Slim. Yeah. That's the yeah, that, that's yeah. Slim. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the episode two and three are directed by Jonathan Van Tolikin. Okay. Cool. But yeah, and, and like you said, Kelly, it's based off of The Changeling by Victor LaVale. It's so good. People are getting so creative and inventive when it comes to the way they present the story, right? You know, if you're not being different in that regard, that's why we feel so numb to a lot of the shit that we see. There's so much content out. Yeah. But I think they really have something with the change. Like well, so I, the only reason I recognize it is because I saw an ad for it a couple days ago yeah. on Facebook of all places. And it was just a still of this person falling towards the city, but the image is entirely yeah. upside down. Yeah. And yeah, it yeah. said like Apple TV Plus. And the changeling. Very cool. So that's how I like recognize it. For a second there, I was just like, are they making a TV show based off the movie we covered? <laughs> but I'm glad you clarified that. That that sounds interesting. Yeah. And that's it. Those are my two biggest things. Cool. Awesome. Like Aaron stated up top, listeners, Kelly, we are doing urban legends, which is an interesting catch-all umbrella term in many ways. I think the idea of an urban legend for us three is going to be very different from urban legend from the generations before us and the generations after us. Yeah. There is a lot of crossover with Cursed Objects, which was our Season of Spoop theme last year. There's a lot of crossover with cryptids. Cryptids fall into urban legends. Ghost stories fall into urban legends. Haunted houses. Urban legend can kind of be anything horror-related, not even horror-related, just strange history that is passing like folklore or dark history of a town every town has its own urban legend or legends every city has its own urban legends just it can be as micro or macrocosm as it can be but it basically is a genre of folklore represented by claims and stories that are circulated amongst people usually friends in our case growing up a lot of mine were in sleepovers 
and then that evolved into like early weird dark internet yeah and like chain letters which then evolved into where we are now with creepy pasta and the scp foundation and all of that stuff and the back rooms like the back rooms is, could be considered a modern urban legend you know with that we wanted to just for fun talk a little bit about urban legends before we get into the movie at large even talk about our own personal urban legends or ones that we experience as kids and ones that we like or heard about we think it's creepy so yeah let's start talking urban legends kelly what was a specific urban legend story that you used to hear growing up what was popular that every kid was talking about what was like a neighborhood thing what do you remember hearing about growing up i mean Candyman. it was one of those urban legends that we used to hear a lot since you guys are asking that question it kind of makes me always you know dig into it a little more but you know i was born in detroit and we had projects yeah. literally right next door to where we stayed at uh which did like these little townhouses and i by no means you know, grew up, I would say even like middle class, you know, in Detroit. And there's almost like a connection there. And I think maybe that's why Candyman just resonated more, right, to us. I don't know. There was something about that film, you know, that always spoke. And in 92, I was only five. So of course, you know, there are certain things that you probably hear of as a child. It just kind of sticks with you, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I would definitely say Candyman, uh, you know, even though that's what we're talking about tonight. That's just something that, I don't know, I've always felt like a different type of connection to. That's really interesting that a movie kind of almost transcends and becomes the actual urban legend in reality, too. Yeah. Because something I was going to probably bring up later on in discussion, but I may as well bring it up now because it sounds like this is exactly what happened. Um, I was reading a couple like takes and articles about this movie and how it's aged for better and for worse from a social standpoint in the modern times. One of the opinion pieces I was reading mentioned that for them, being a person of color growing up, they loved horror movies, but it was always just Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Chucky, and like they're all like white guys. Yeah. Even Chucky, before he becomes a <laughs> doll, is a white guy. Tony Todd's Candyman was the first we have our own slasher. Like yeah. we have our own guy, and he is just as iconic looking. His lines are just as iconic. His weapon is just as iconic. This is our guy. Like, despite however I may feel now about it in modern times. He is always my slasher. And again, this is just the universal argument that representation matters, even in art and in movies and entertainment. Yeah. But I, I find that fascinating that you are like the example of that growing up. Because again, yeah, for us, it was just Bloody Mary, but even just, oh, what if Freddy Krueger came after us in our dreams when we go to sleep? But like, we never really, like, at least among like my friends, we talked about Candyman as just among movies that we shouldn't watch but we want to because our parents don't want us to but otherwise it wasn't a thing that became this greater yeah. a phenomena in everyday life yeah we definitely talked about Candyman growing up because i went to a school where until middle school where they started smushing all the smaller elementaries together i was the only white kid in my class pretty much yeah. always so like i knew about Candyman from pretty early on and was aware of Candyman as this looming figure. It wasn't until probably around middle school-ish that I actually saw Candyman on TV. That was one that I know got a lot of play on the more premium movie networks like Showtime and HBO and stuff. It, it wasn't really a heavy cable movie for whatever reason. I know why. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was just, holy shit, the violence in this movie, like how yeah. do we edit around this? You know, I don't, I don't know what it was, but it was definitely on like a lot of the primo 
movie channels because I, I remember seeing it on Cinemax or Showtime or one of those probably at my grandfather's house because they're the only people that had the premium movie channels that I knew growing up. But um, I remember everybody talking about them constantly. I remember people playing Candyman on the playground. Wait, hold on. Put a pin there. Did you watch Skinamax at your grandparents' house when you were a, a young lad? Oh, of course. Like, if you just want, like, straight-up confession, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that you're committed to that. Like, you didn't back down. No. You confidently were like, hell yeah, I jerked it to Skinamax. What's there to be ashamed about? I was a fucking, like, adolescent boy exploring my sexuality on late-night television. No judgment Peace, here. Whatever. If anything, I'm jealous. I never had access to Skinamax, and I don't think any of my friends had it either. Honestly, it's just kind of boring. <laughs> you, you sit and you watch so much garbage because you're looking yeah. for things that have the ratings markers, you know, V for violence, L for language. And then you're like, oh, this one has S and N, sex and nudity. <laughs> what is this? And then you put on some bullshit like Emmanuel, you know, best little whorehouse in Texas. You're like, this is going to be some good shit. And then it's like, what the fuck is Burt Reynolds singing? What is this movie? When's Dolly Parton going to show those tits? Turns out never. It's not that <laughs> kind of movie. Anyway, so I remember kids playing Candyman. Like, that's yeah. fucked up. Yeah. But like, I remember kids playing Candyman on the playground. You would find a stick that's kind of hooked shaped. And it was basically tag. It just somebody was Candyman and ran around and chased everybody. You had to like hide and go seek shit. As far as like an actual urban legend, and I think I've mentioned this like way back on the show, there was a super sketchy, rundown old house that was on a big, probably quad lot. Derek, you were in Hattiesburg for a couple of years, so you remember the weird lot that was across from the Lutheran Church and Shipley's Donuts. Yeah. Right? Where there, it's like one house. Wasn't there an actual murder that happened there, too? I believe so. Which, again, like is where all this fucking came from. Yeah. <laughs> that might have been a Hattiesburg urban legend. That's what I'm saying. This was. That house was set way back from the road on this giant quad lot. It is a really weird spot for us. In the middle yeah. of the avenues, there's no open space like that anywhere else in that area. It's at one of the busiest parts of Hattiesburg because it is in between all of the housing where all the students live off yeah. campus. But somehow this one house looks like it's in another fucking like city altogether. It's like the yeah. Texas Chainsaw House. Like it's just tucked away in the back of this foliage, even though there's a Kroger's or whatever right there. <laughs> it has a lot of old growth trees around that kind of hide it from the immediate street. So it was always this weird, what's in there? What the fuck is going on with this weird house that you can like see through the trees and the bushes is back there, but there's never anybody there. What the fuck is this thing? And we used to like tell this story of, oh yeah, this fucking family was murdered in that house and that's why it's empty wow. and they're like ghosts are still in this house ready to fucking kill whoever comes in because they think it's the people who killed them coming back right trying to get their vengeance and i remember like we finally nutted up and went in there and it was just an empty house i think what spooked us for real though was there were bags of canned groceries but it looked like somebody had maybe set that shit down five minutes before we walked in oh my god that is yeah. creepy yeah <laughs> we walked in and realized oh somebody's probably squatting here we need to get the fuck out that kind of spooked us but we did just walk in and we're like well, we're still here so like i guess the ghost part of it is not i don't know 
and then find out, oh yeah, no, there was like a fucking brutal murder that happened at that house. That's great. There was, yeah. So it kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier about so many urban legends are rooted in truth. You know, there was some initial something that happened and obviously it spun up and spun out and became this larger, huge mythical thing in a community. It's interesting to see how communities utilize those urban legends. You know, is it a warning to young kids to not go to this place or not do this thing or not be out past whatever? Is it a signpost for this type of thing doesn't happen here in this town anymore because XYZ occurred years ago? Like, what does the urban legends signify? How does the community, like, use that as a tool for teaching? And how does that get exploited? How does that get misinterpreted? You know, how does it get transmuted when outside forces, again, like this movie we're talking about, come in that want to understand it better, and it's not their place necessarily to know or understand or participate in that, and how those things get transported from one place to another. I find the entire idea of it fascinating. Just all the, like, semiotics of how this works is endlessly fascinating to me, which is why people still, still write actual academic papers nonstop about urban legends and oral histories and storytelling, all these kind of things. And like, what does it mean? Why do we do it? And I mean, the why ultimately boils down to humankind has been doing it since we were in fucking caves yeah. sitting around a fire, right? Storytelling. An urban legend feels different than just a folklore or a religious story. Because or, there's a yeah. punitive lesson to it. There's always that aspect of, I'm telling you this as a warning. Yeah. You can get fucked up. This is why we have this story. This is what happened. You need to learn from this. To me, that's what separates an urban legend from just, like you said, folklore story. Like There's always a lesson to be learned. There's always some judgment that can occur if you transgress for whatever reason, you know? But even in some folklore, there are also lessons. I think more of what an urban legend to me is, is it's more modern within like the last several decades. And also, too, there's just something so local about an urban legend. Sure. Even though like now that we have, we're in the information age, internet age, and urban legends are now shared globally. I mean, there's a fucking Wikipedia article list of popular urban legends. Even then, like there's probably still like urban legends in small towns in any country, not just the U.S., that have only made it in that town or only being passed around in that town. It hasn't quite reached the broader information. But so, for instance, here's a very micro microcosm urban legend that I encountered. And I think I brought this up also on a way back episode, like one of our very first episodes when we were still sharing personal experiences in my old neighborhood where my parents used to live. They no longer live there in New Orleans. In the middle of the neighborhood, there was a bird sanctuary and it was basically like a mini forest. And mind you, a mini forest surrounded by an entire neighborhood. This neighborhood is very populated. It's very urbanized. But sitting in the middle of it is this half square mile of forest. And before Hurricane Katrina came through and knocked out 70% of the trees that were in there because they were all termite infested, it was like a dense forest, almost borderline swamp. When it would rain heavily, it basically turned into a swamp. We'd go play in there all the time because it was amazing for hide and go seek and tag. It was amazing for all that stuff to just explore. It was generally creepy, especially at night once the sun went down. And in the middle of this bird sanctuary, for some fucking reason, 
and no one really knows where this thing came from because on the stone where it said the dedication to who put it there was like already like worn out where you couldn't really read who it was. This old stone seat, single seat, not even big enough for two people, like a lover seat or something. It was literally just a small seat. Only one person can sit on it. And it was old as fuck. It was cracked. The stone was breaking apart. It was kind of up on a very small mound. And we developed, not just us, all the kids in the neighborhood, even ones that my friend group didn't hang out with. This is where they do the sacrifices. <laughs> yeah. I remember there was an urban legend that like the mound has a baby skull in it. And that's why that's there. Oh God. And there was another urban legend. If you slept with your head underneath the stone in the middle of the night, you get visited by ghosts. There was another urban legend that if you stayed there overnight and sat on the stone at midnight or something, you'd get killed in the middle of the night by a ghost that come and visit you. I remember one night we slept over at one of my friend's houses and he lived across the street from the bird sanctuary. We swore that we saw like a, a person dragging a body into the park, into that area. The next morning, we all ran out there and tried to look for like a buried body. Sure. That yeah. kind of shit. I also remember, and this is just something that'll never happen again because it was such an early 90s thing, or early internet thing, rather, for your, you Gen Z people. There used to be emails that were sent, junk mails that were like chain letters. And I had like, an email account very early on on AOL. Uh, I still have that fucking AOL email, actually. <laughs> I've had it for nearly 25 years. There used to be like junk mail that gets sent to you, but it wouldn't get processed to junk. There was no junk mail setting. You could only open emails, delete them, and reply or send or forward. And that was it. And so somehow these chain letters would always come around. Some of them were scams, but some of them were just someone fucking around. And I remember opening one as like a 10-year-old. And it was like, you have to forward this email to 20 people by midnight or you're yeah. going to be visited by Bloody Mary. <laughs> and she's going to scratch your eyes out and leave you blind. And so, of course, when you were like eight years old, you were like, oh, God, yeah. oh, gee, I gotta do this. And they had this picture of Bloody Mary in the email showing you what <laughs> she looked like. And it creeped me the fuck out. And, and in actuality, it was probably a really shitty, like, 90s JPEG image. <laughs> but at the time, it scared the fuck out of me. And I, like, I only had, like, 12 friends that had emails. So I was just like, <laughs> oh, no, I gotta send them to everybody. <laughs> yeah. I sent it to my dad and told him to, like, send this to everyone at work so I don't get killed. And, like, oh, I'm God. sure he just ignored it. All that kind of shit. Those are technically all emails. And then I remember even I tried to reply back to the email and beg them not to kill me. And I got, you know how they had the uh, message failed to send from the daemon, the D-A-E-M-O-N yeah. mail. Then I was like, a demon emailed me back. Oh, my God. You know, I did all that shit, which is also, by the way, a premise of uh, what we do in the Shadows episode, by the way. Heather sometimes makes fun of me for, like, not being on the Internet as early as a lot of people our age were. But then at the same time, these are the things that I hear, and it makes me happy that I was not yeah. on the internet that early. <laughs> but at the same time, early internet was kind of like watching a horror movie when you were too young to watch it, and it blew your oh, mind sure. away. Yeah. Early internet was like a generally a dangerous place in weird yeah. ways, and yeah. I kind of miss it. <laughs> a lot of the pre-proto creepypasta shit and internet urban legends were stuff like this that sure. I experienced. And then the last one that I remember is that someone's older sibling told me and my friends the story of they went to college because they were like a good 10 years older or something than me and my friends. And they told us about the dorm room urban legend where like there was this girl and her and her roommate were completely opposite. This girl was a party animal 
and her roommate was someone who just liked to stay in and study. Well, one night she went to the party. She stayed by. She was murdered, or her body was in the bed the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Came back and the room is completely pitch black. She sees her friend in the bed. Assume she's asleep. Goes to sleep. Wakes up the next morning. Her friend's been eviscerated in the bed. And on the wall in blood, it says, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the lights last night or something like that Yeah, in blood? And we all took that as fact because there was no way we could, like, you know, check if that was bullshit or not. And we were all like seven or eight at the time. And I heard that the girl then got like all A's and got to leave school because uh, her roommate died. Right? That's how that works. Yep. Yeah. Another fun one is Polybius. Yeah. That's a fun one. It's the haunted arcade machine that was crowdsourced by the government. And I don't know where it started, honestly. I need to backtrack it and maybe figure this out for this show. But several movies, tons of movies, books, etc. have done this whole thing like, oh, we got to track down this movie. There's a collector who's wanting this. One copy of this movie from decades ago, this mysterious director made it. He went fucking crazy and nobody knows what happened to him, but whoever watches this movie goes insane or gets killed or whatever. Like that premise has been around forever. And whether it's a movie or it's a cursed book or something. Yeah, in this case, it's a cursed arcade machine. That type of urban legend has been done a gajillion times too. Yeah. And yeah, Polybius is just that, but with an arcade machine that the government made. Yep. So, okay, yeah, that's some good talk about urban legends in general. So let's kind of transition into Candyman, because there's a lot to talk about here. First of all, normally, I mean, we ask, oh, yeah, guest, you picked this. What is your background with this? So let's still do well, that. Well, first of all, do you want to hit him with the trailer? 1992's Candyman, directed and written by Bernard Rose? Yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting all the fucking intros today. Whatever. Here we go. Here's... Mm, Taste of Candyman. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman? Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bring it it ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jean? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now she is about to discover. Helen? What's behind the mystery? You're sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. Candyman, you don't have to believe. Just beware.
Okay, anyway. (laughs) So, Kelly, what about this movie specifically speaks to you? Why did you want to do this? When we started the show, Kelly, you gave us three movies that you said, no matter what, these are the three I want to be on. And it was Fright Night, this movie, and I think Get Out or uh, Evil Dead, one or the other. But we were like still only a, a dozen episodes in. You like planted your flag on these movies. It's definitely a horror favorite of mine. You know, we've kind of already talked about the significance of Tony Todd, right? People who are listening, they probably seen him in, you know, the original Final Destination. I think he was in, in other ones as well. Mm-hmm. He was in Hatchet series, if y'all yep. have seen Hatchet, which I, I did two days on. You did two days on the original one or you did two days yes, on two days on the original Hatchet? Well, I guess they shot some of all of those down in New Orleans, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah. So we have like three friends now that have worked on one of the Hatchet movies. Uh-huh. It was Hatchet 1. I was just PA. You know, I was, gotcha. I was earning my DGA days technically, which I never Hell finished yeah. my 600. Well, what's cool about Candyman, if you really dig deep, I mean, it, it's definitely a story about race and class. Yeah. And I think anytime there's any film that kind of creates, innovates, but also subverts a little bit, you know, think about if you're a true horror fan, your love is going to go from slasher to psychological to supernatural to creature feature to we all remember those old Hammer films, you know, that yep. are, are always going to be locked in our brain. You know, so I'm always dipping into stuff. But when Candyman hit, and I didn't see Candyman in 92, and it's funny that y'all had mentioned that you didn't really watch it on, on cable. I remember seeing it. I think I've told y'all this before. Like, I have fond memories growing up in Detroit, pretending to be sick, you know, because dad wasn't around. So it was just mom and she was fucking overworked. She's like, oh, you little shit, you're sick again. Okay, well, I got to go. So like, (laughs) take care of yourself. Here's some soup. Here's some diamond tap, whatever. Yeah, I got to go to work. Exactly. Deuces. We had what was called WGN Superstation. Yeah. And I don't know if y'all remember the days of Superstations. Yep. Mm -hmm. But WGN would play all the dope shit. It would play Child's Play. I remember the first time I saw Children of the Corn was on Superstation. Yep. Yeah, you're right. It would play a lot of that stuff. And it'd be random. It'd yeah. Be random yeah. yeah. Very random. Yeah. yeah. I would bet, too, with you being in Detroit, I know that the WGN that I watched growing up was out of Chicago. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if it was yeah. just like split up by time zones or what. But yeah, we probably watched a lot of the same shit at the same time on the opposite ends of the country. Just yeah. didn't know it. <laughs> and that's what's dope about Superstations because they don't really work the same way. Yeah. It would be out of Chicago, but it would be syndication all yeah. everywhere you know and so i could be in detroit and you could be in you know mississippi but we're watching the same shit which is always dope but i do remember seeing Candyman on superstation at one point there are certain films that just stay with you right yeah but you know i look back at it now getting much older having certain experiences that i have etc my point was when you think about everything like in the slasher genre at least because i you know Candyman fits right in the slasher even though it deals predominantly with race and class. But think about Jason, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, whether it was, I don't know, psychosis or, you know, whatever, like they were just fucking crazy or they did things to the world, right? But what was cool about Candyman is the world did something to him. Yeah. Yeah. And Injustice was the inception of everything that happened to him. I know we will use the word, but unequivocally, it was a lynching, right? And it's Mm -hmm. crazy how current that word is you know unfortunately yeah exactly very unfortunate but that's why Candyman will always be like 
I would say not just to the black community, but I mean, that's one of those ones where it's like, you know, like Get Out, like Get Out was a great film, no matter what you look like. But I think to like the people of color, Get Out's just a little extra, right? And I think Candyman Mm -hmm. is in that same vein. You're right. Where it just speaks a little more true. And it's crazy that they took a swing. You know, I think it's, was that Columbia TriStar who released Candyman? Who was? No, that was Universal, Yeah, I believe. It's just dope that they took a swing, right? And like y'all know, there's some bold moments in that fucking movie that <laughs> yeah, there you'll are. never forget. You'll never forget. I love a lot of horror, but there's stuff in Candyman that's just, you know, it kind of goes deep. To be uh, pun intended, it, it stings deep a little bit. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. This is kind of the first time that I, I feel like there's been a comparison to like one of the earliest movies we covered on the show. And it's still arguably maybe the scary. And for me, the scariest movie we've covered was Autopsy of Jane Doe. The villain in that movie, or was also the victim of some kind of crime. In this case, it was, and now is this not even the force of justice, but just this destructive force. And I feel like with Candyman, the beginning lines with Tony Todd summarize exactly who he is, what he's about, especially the lines like, They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? That, I feel like, encapsulates his whole viewpoint on it. Because yeah. that is one thing. So, speaking from my standpoint, because, of course, you know, I, once again, kind of going on tropes of our own show. This is the first time I've seen this movie start to finish. Aaron, I did not go to a, a school where I was the only white kid, if anything. It was a school with mostly white kids. Yes, we knew Candyman, but we didn't know Candyman in the same way as, a, like, a cultural phenomenon. We just knew Candyman as another, like scary movie that our parents don't want us to watch yeah uh, otherwise we didn't really play Candyman. if anything we played bloody mary another popular urban legend that Candyman's kind of based off of in a way but like watching this for the first time in 2023 so many elements of this movie are again maybe more relevant now than ever before unfortunately that's always a kick in the nuts it's kind of like when we watch they live and that movie from 1984 whenever that came out is also just as relevant now as it was back then Uh i was also kicked in the nuts of just how scary this movie was oh yeah because like for an early 90s movie it's pretty fucking scary and not even just jump scares because most of the jump scares involve a mirror obviously most of the jump scares are televised pretty heavily yeah but what happens is visually horrifying and even just what's implied is also horrifying so this is an interesting movie to recommend to like horror newbies because i think everyone should watch this movie just from an importance standpoint once again we are shout to the heavens horror has always been political art has always been political this is like a touchstone movie for that example i think it's an important movie that people need to watch yes i do think it has it aged well in some ways or not aged well in some ways yes i think it's a little problematic now and we'll get to that but as far as an actual horror movie that's good it's amazing an actual horror monster is amazing and then just an importance to where we are especially in america especially racial tensions in america it's important to watch now so i implore like not just horror fans but movie fans to watch this movie even if you don't necessarily uh, wind up liking it but i think it is an important movie and frankly to me, this felt like a star-making performance for Tony Todd. It was, yeah. yeah. And yes, I know he's had a pretty good career. But like, I feel like he should have been way bigger deal after this movie came out. Like, I feel like there should be other roles, not just Candyman, that like he's known for on that level. Because this was such a fucking slam-dunk performance by him. But you know, maybe it's because it was a horror movie and 
or kind of has always historically got shat on. Absolutely love this movie. Definitely going to be in my top personal horror movies. Socially, I think there are some things that are dated that haven't aged well, but like I think that's kind of par for the course, especially with a movie that's trying to tackle what this movie is tackling. Yeah, and we'll get into that later. But like, as just an opening thesis that's kind of where i stand on this like i think this is a up there in the importance of horror movies and horror slasher movies it's always fun when there's a slasher that's not just a gimmick but a slasher that is also something else like a ghost because Candyman, you could argue is also a ghost kind of like freddy krueger is also a dream demon there's a very interesting way that Candyman, as this character kind of straddles the line between physical and metaphysical you know like he will suddenly appear he will suddenly disappear he will speak to you in your fucking very soul from 50 feet away in a parking garage in these ghostly ways but then he'll also stab his entire fucking hook arm through the middle of somebody's chest (laughs) and gut them and that happened, you know, like it's interesting just to see how he kind of has one foot in each world and how he moves back and forth between those. That psychologist was a fucking born victim oh, yeah. if I ever oh, saw yeah. one in a horror movie. <laughs> what, um, what else is cool when you talk about the physical and the metaphysical from a filmmaking perspective, it's crazy to me that the movie is 139, so an hour 40. You don't see him until you get to that car park like 40 minutes yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. It's like halfway through. But what's dope is what a way to let that pot simmer a little bit and fucking boils right back into what we're talking about with urban legends. What makes an urban legend so powerful is the verbal and the haptic history, right? Yeah. It is that, oh man, yeah, I heard that when I was a kid. And now that shit has been living with me for fucking 30 years. You know what I mean? And like, I think that's what's beautiful. And, And the filmmaker, he had the uh, awareness to be like, yo, it, it is going to work. But we won't see him until 40 minutes in. I think, you know, that's a risk for some people's movies. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think it really, really works for Candyman. The script also does its due diligence by setting up a lot of shit that doesn't pay off. Yeah. Yeah. You're going into this with these characters who are studying urban legends. So we're already starting the movie off with the standpoint of, Shit's not real. This is all stuff we make up to like scare each other or teach lessons or whatever. Then we have, oh, well, there might be some truth to like some of these things that happened, but actually what it was was XYZ. And then there's, oh shit, no, there is a candy man. Turns out it's this fucking gang, you know, and you've got old guy doing his lineup. It still cracks me up. He's just like, I'm the candy man, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying it's so played. I thought he was going to return in this movie and get gutted by candy man. That didn't happen. He just come up and then, you know, all of a sudden, just when you think things might be kind of leveling off again, you just get and just in the fucking parking lot. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, this is different. Something just happened. You know, I was reading a lot of old reviews, new reviews, analysis, etc. And one of the like complaints that I saw when this movie was first reviewed back in the 90s, and I even saw a little bit of it in, in like more modern takes on it, and this is just a filmmaking standpoint of just the plot sort of has plot holes or makes no sense in certain ways. Like the idea of just all of a sudden Candyman is claiming that he's losing his power because she showed his followers she's not afraid of him, but you never see his followers, but he keeps referring to his followers. Stuff like that. But I think all that stuff is better because that's, again, to your point, Kelly, 
that's how an urban legend is. It's a whispers of people around the community. He's not saying literal cultist followers. He is saying that people of Cabrini Green Projects are my followers. And, you know, when this woman comes in to the projects multiple times, looking into this, gets attacked by the gang member and then is still not afraid, then people start saying like, oh, well, the Candyman was just the gang member who attacked her. Now he's been arrested, so he has no power. He wasn't real. And so when he is coming after Helen saying, you know, because you showed my followers that you're unafraid, like I'm losing power. I thought that was all effective, even if it was more metaphysical or more referred. There's so many elements that are off screen that are talked about, but never shown. And I think that's, again, how an urban legend really manifests and whether it lives and dies by by the whispers in the wind of the community. And regardless, words have power. You know, yeah. as much as we want to live by the whole like sticks and stones, break my bones, words will never hurt me kind of idea. Words have impact. Words have power. Words have weight to them. Words have fucked up connotations. Off the top of my head, we are three guys sitting here. Doesn't it kind of kick you in the dick a little bit when you hear the like, oh, blah, blah, blah. That's not what real men do. And you're like, what is that supposed to mean? Right? Yeah. What does that mean for me? And that's just such a weird loaded phrase, too. Here's one for you, Kelly. I'm sure you've heard the like, oh, you're not black enough. The fuck? What does that mean, right? I had friends that would throw that shit around growing up, and it doesn't hit you when you're a kid the same way as an adult when you're really thinking about internalizing all this shit. You know, you're not whatever enough, you know, real whatever, don't do that. Just that kind of stuff where you're like, fuck, words hurt, words have impact, and there's something about names and weaponizing a name and an identity and turning that into like almost this holy and religious thing. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of religions don't speak the name of God because it is this weapon. It is like a powerful thing to invoke. And the idea of Candyman being summoned because you say that word five times into a mirror, there is a ritual to that. There's impact to that. There's power behind that. Whether like the word itself actually means anything fundamentally, no, it doesn't. That's kind of the sticks and stones part of it. The word itself means nothing, but our intention and the purpose behind it and why we're doing it and the summoning of Candyman has purpose to it. That's the stuff where like I find this whole part of the story, at least the religious connotations part of this story so interesting. I mean, he's literally like, in this rotted out fucking graffiti apartment in a project in Chicago, but he's literally referring to it as his church, right? This is my chapel. These are my people, right? It's not that the place itself has innate power as much as how you intend to then use that place and refer to it and like how you treat it, you know? All that stuff in this movie I find to be fascinating. And it kind of transcends a little bit of the obviousness of where this movie goes ultimately. But I think that's some of the extra edge that makes this so effective because that's the stuff that's fundamentally unknowable. We can learn a lot about who Daniel Robitaille was, which funny enough, it literally just doesn't dawn on me because I've seen all of these movies so many times, even like the two shitty sequels, which I love the new one. I guess listeners right here, there's your like disclaimer. We're going to fucking cover 
the 2021 movie and Kelly's coming back for that one. I was going to say, if y'all do that one, you got to have me back. That was the one that you initially were like, I want this. We already got you in on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking love, love that movie. Love it. And Derek, if you think this one is a fucking gut punch that, oh God, modern day shit, the new one's fucking amazing. You know, I, I find it interesting that he's not even referred to as Daniel Robitaille in this first movie at all. That is wholly an invention of the sequels. Mm-hmm. He is just the Candyman in yeah. this one. You know, that it's it's so interesting and kind of unknowable in that way that he's transcended his humanity. Because we do get his backstory in this. I mean, we're told, like, what the legend is, how he got the way he is, you know, but the moniker of Candyman has kind of become this new word for God that we have all collectively created ourselves and we've given power to that. You know, like we said, he is fundamentally a victim, but he is a victim that now we are giving power to and enabling and calling upon to like seek retribution. And what's fun about Candyman is it's just a fucking shotgun. You open that bottle and just there's no stopping him. Anybody that gets in the way is going to get fucked up. Yeah, I wasn't ready for the child. <laughs> seeing that one fucked me up. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm not going to say there's not logic to how he chooses his victims or how people get in the way or whatever. But it's more just that you have to be aware of what you're doing. You have to be aware of what you're invoking. You have to be aware of what you're really opening up at the end of the day and you have to be willing to like accept the fucking consequences of that i like how the movie mirrors so much of the original clive barker short story in terms of the plot i don't know if either of y'all have actually read the forbidden no i haven't read the forbidden that was one of the short stories that was in clive barker's books of blood right i think it's in volume five so i have not read that short story all these years because i had just heard it has nothing to do with the movie. Okay. So I just never bothered. But I did because we're talking about this story now and I wanted to see like where did this come from. It's a very, very short read. I would recommend people check it out. The plot is basically exactly what happens in this movie. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah. I don't know why people say like, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with the movie. It's not set in Chicago. It's yeah. set in Liverpool, right? And it doesn't have the American history of slavery and racism and lynching like it doesn't have that angle but literally the plot of woman who is studying at a local university doing work on semiotics and storytelling goes to a notoriously poor crime-ridden lower income slummy part of town there is definitely a like class divide commentary happening where her and the rest of these very affluent, snotty, intellectual, condescending elites are kind of looking at these primitive, poor, dirty simpletons and their weird pagan rituals with, you know, a lot of judgment and disdain, but weird fascination at the same time. All of that is even still present to a degree in the movie. The old dinner scene with the haughty, like, English professor who, like, had studied the phenomena of Candyman years prior. Yeah. All of that really felt like where I was being like, okay, I see the class of idea because she had literally just come from the projects interviewing that mother. And now here she is talking with these professors and doctors who are all like full shit in this high end expensive restaurant. Yeah, it's all still there. 
And I think what's interesting, and this is where this movie, to me at least, really transcends and works. And not just in like a horror way, but like you were saying earlier, I mean, this is great capital A American cinema. You now have so many more layers to the story because now you're looking at, again, the history of American racism and slavery. You are looking at systemic economic inequality. You are looking at the history of American architecture and how entire cities and suburbs are planned. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised by that whole, how she mirrors her like apartment to the projects. Uh-huh, because she now lives in the gentrified tower, yeah. That was part of the movie I did not see coming whatsoever, Yeah, and I was just like, huh, okay, yeah, that's a whole aspect I didn't even consider. There is still very much a class divide. You know, yeah. because you've got, again, these professors who clearly are like kind of well off. And then you've still got Helen and Bernadette who are like, you know, they're living okay, but they're not living amazing. To then like all the residents of Cabrini Green. You've even got layers within that where Bernadette, who is, I guess, essentially middle class black woman going to this project where she is now like, immediately met with suspicion because oh you're not one of us you know like there is like a disconnect there you're also looking at helen being a woman being a white woman specifically just assuming oh i can just go do whatever i'm not going to get in trouble nobody's going to say whatever to me there's a lot of assumptions that this woman makes of shit that she thinks she can just get away with or just places she can be or things she can do or say or whatever she just has a lot of arrogance you know, in interesting ways. There's just so many fucking social layers to this movie that are very interesting, very well observed, and I think you get just enough of all of those that there is a lot of meat to this story without feeling like you're being beat over the head by any of it, really. But it's all stuff that, if any other regular horror movie just kind of hit on one of those aspects, we generally tend to give it a lot of credit. Right. And this movie has so much more than just the one or two little things. I like this quote from the director, Bernard Rose, that ties into, again, the theme of this entire month. So the tradition of oral storytelling is very much alive, especially when it's a scary story. The biggest urban legend of all for me was the idea that there are places and cities where you do not go, because if you go in, then something dreadful will happen. Not to say there isn't danger in ghettos or inner city areas, but the exaggerated fear of them is the urban myth. That's something that I find to be endlessly interesting because, again, I grew up in a small city in Mississippi, and I remember telling people like, oh yeah, I grew up in the avenues, I lived in the avenues, and people would be like, the fuck? You know, you live in the avenues? Yeah, it's perfectly fine. There's nothing weird that happens there. Well, yeah, like, isn't there, like, crime all over the avenues? Yeah, there's crime over, all over this fucking city. You know, just, it is what it is. Like, <laughs> we're in the South. Poverty is everywhere. Guess what? Crime also goes hand in hand with that. It doesn't have anything to do with anything else other than that. But I definitely remember that. I remember there also just being lots of, and Derek, I know you and Kelly, you too. Y'all can both recognize the, oh, yeah, I'm going to New Orleans. I'm going into the city. You're going into the city. Be careful where you're going. Don't go to this place and blah, blah, blah. Don't yeah. Go dark. yeah. Just like all that bullshit about yeah. you don't yeah. need to be in this place, right? Yeah. There's a lot of that weird overprotective. My parents, especially. Don't go to that yeah. part of town kind of bullshit. 
And let's be real, a lot of it's largely race-related. A lot of it is largely poverty-related. A lot of it is, oh, we don't want to go where the poors are because there's crime that happens, right? I just find it endlessly interesting that this Brit wrote this story that then got adapted by another Brit who visited Chicago for a film festival and was so fucking taken by the idea Mm -hmm. of Chicago and the architecture in Chicago and how it's this example of amazing, incredible, some of the greatest architecture of all time, but then also it is the fucking poster child situation example of how to fuck up urban planning and communities and how to like (laughs) shove thousands of people into just a couple of hundred square feet of land because you don't want them here. You don't want them there, right? He was so taken by all of that that that's how he filtered this entire story that had nothing to do with any of that. And so much of it fucking, like you said, still rings true. How many fucking instances have we seen lately of black kid goes and knocks on the wrong door, gets shot at, oh, there's a fucking FedEx truck in our neighborhood, but there's a black guy driving and he must be up to some nonsense. Yeah. Shoot at him. Jesus fucking Christ. In just the last year alone, how often has that shit happened? Because there's just such a fear of the other. There's a fear of what's outside of your immediate community. So much of that just permeates American culture in a wild, insane way. And that's why this story is just still so fucking effective, because that's the entire crux of how this story is broken down, is this woman is going into this area that she has been told historically is where you don't go, you don't trespass there. And the why has nothing to do with the ultimate example, fucking Candyman is there. (laughs) But it's interesting like how all of that stuff breaks down. And it's interesting how she explains to Jake, Candyman's not real. He's like Frankenstein or Dracula. And yet we know fucking Dracula is like based on a real guy, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, and I was about to say, like, in the world of this movie, we only know about Candyman and Cabrini Green homes. What other urban legends are circulating through all uh-huh. these other areas across all the cities in the America? The next project over, yeah. you know, the next city over. What if there's something worse than Candyman? And kind of going back toward like one of the things I think this movie does do really well from a social political standpoint is even just the line of dialogue when she's interviewing that mom towards the beginning, she had heard the screaming from the other room when Candyman was murdering the other woman. Virginia Madsen, you know, bless her little white heart, was just like, didn't you call the police? And she's just like, they're not going to come here. They never <laughs> yeah. come here. Like, what the fuck do you mean? They're, they're not going to help us. That seclusion within your own city will read something like the Candyman, then no one would be none the wiser. And frankly, from the police standpoint, no one gives a shit. It's their problem. And not just that. I mean, granted, this is 30 years ago. Yeah. But it's not like it wasn't true then. It's not like it's not true now. Like, why would you call the police? Yeah. Do you really want the police coming and checking in on the situation, knowing how they fucking react to things nowadays? No. But you don't have an option. There's nothing else that you can do. You you are helpless in the situation. The clever thing this movie does to really hammer that point home, the only times the police actually do show up at the projects and multiple officers showing up is when this white woman is involved in something. Didn't show up when the woman was murdered by Candyman in the apartment over. Didn't show up for any of the other violence that happened to all these other people within their community. But when her character wakes up in the apartment, which does the dog die.com, yeah, the dog fucking dies.com. <laughs> Real bad in this movie. Uh, um, yeah. But like when she wakes up in that apartment and rightfully so, the mother attacks her. And then when she gets attacked by the fake Candyman, 
in those two instances, the police arrive immediately. Like the detective was there interviewing her after the attack. And then like the police are there when she's in that woman's apartment. And they even have that one detective, the one who initially showed up and is friendly to her and is just like, identify these people. And she thinks I've established this friendship with this detective. But then the second time when they suspect her of actually committing the crime, he yells at her. He doesn't give a fuck about her. All of that is just, they're not here to solve the problem. They are here to enforce things and keep the status quo. Her being like a white woman in this project is against that. So they need to get her. Her disturbing it by like causing this crime in this area is against the status quo. We need to intimidate her into like getting at us. Or not just that. It's also, you know, oh, we have to go because this is going to be politically bad if we don't. This is going to look bad on the department if we don't. This is going to make the news if we like. There's also that fucked up angle to it as well. But yeah, I mean, that whole thing is like a whole other can of worms. And I don't know how much further I want to go down this avenue for this movie, if I'm being honest, because again, Derek, you have not seen the newer movie. Oh, so the new one really goes down that avenue. Okay. I mean, it it informs the whole like mythos of who Candyman is, but also who Candyman can be. Yeah. Interesting. So beautifully poetic. Oh, yeah. It's fucking good, bro. But I mean, executive produced by Jordan Peele, you know, Nia DaCosta did her fucking thing. Like it's a it is it's a great film and I can't wait till we talk about it. Yeah. All right. So step away from that. But I want to save a lot yeah. of this yeah. for that. Yes, yeah. I do think it was important to at least bring up the fact that the yeah. police only showed up when she was involved. Yeah. Otherwise, they didn't give a fuck about these people. Yeah. So the whole story about the hook-handed killer. That's a whole urban legend as well. (laughs) Goes after the couple who's screwing around, right? In this instance, starring Ted Raimi. As Billy. Cool Billy. Getting gutted. Y'all, I'm so glad neither one of you brought that up to me. That was a nice fucking surprise (laughs) at the beginning of this movie. Ted Raimi's goofy ass macking on that girl. Yeah. (laughs) He looked like a greaser, hey? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the leather jacket was a bit much. So what I found wild, and I didn't know this actually until I started looking up some stuff about this movie, but the entire grisly detail about the, like, killers entering the apartments through the adjoining bathroom mirrors, that is 100% based on some real-life shit that happened in spring of 87. So, like, that happened. Ruth Mae McCoy... Woman, single, in her 50s, lived on the 11th floor of the Abbott Homes Project, which is on the near west side of Chicago. This was a group of several different towers. I think it was called like the Abla Towers, and Abbott was the one that she lived in. Anyway, she calls 911 to report that someone had broken into her apartment by like crawling in through the medicine cabinet in her bathroom. And the 911 reporter was just like, sure, lady, sounds good. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. All right. And just chalked it up to, like, disagreement with a neighbor. And then it took two more fucking phone calls of people complaining about screams and gunshots for the police to actually arrive. And then, of course, when they get there, like, they knock. Nobody answers. The door is locked. And they're just like, oh, well. So they leave. And then the next day, a concerned neighbor calls 911 and is like, yeah, we still haven't seen her since the police were here yesterday. Something's up. This is not good. So the police come back and they're like, oh, yeah, well, the super's keys don't work. So I don't know. Do we break down the fucking door? Eh, whatever. 
the Chicago Housing Authority shows up and they're like, no, you can't break down the fucking door. We got to have this place for the next person. So they refused to let the cops break down the door. And they were like, okay, I guess we all just leave again. Unbelievable. So they come back the next day and drill the lock. And that's when they discover her body. Took three fucking days, right? So the other fucked up thing is other neighbors had called and reported, hey, we heard all the disturbances and all the crazy bullshit that happened. There are now these two sketchy guys that have a history of breaking in and robbing people's places, uh, carrying this woman's TV in her rocking chair just through the apartment. We saw them at seven in the morning. So these guys get picked up after two fucking years of this trial. They were just released due to like lack of evidence. They just shot this woman to death, bailed. No weapon was ever found or recovered. It was also one of those fucked up things where there was no actual forensic investigation. Once they found her body, they literally just called the morgue and the morgue picked the body up. They didn't investigate the crime scene. So ultimately, this woman's daughter sued the fuck out of the CHA for like poor construction planning. And why the fuck were these apartments not sealed off from each other? All the like bullshit with, you know, not responding to call in time, not being able to get into the apartment on time, just all this bullshit. And she apparently got a pretty big fucking settlement from the city ultimately. But that entire aspect happened. That was real shit. And that is the kind of shit that like, again, urban legends are 100% built around fucked up weird things like this. So you, you have that aspect. You have the Bloody Mary aspect. You have the hook killer aspect. Those are all like multiple urban legends and real story shipped into one and then i also i might be jumping ahead this might be in your notes already Aaron. i like that tidbit from tony todd himself said that part of the inspiration for Candyman was dc comics scarecrow the batman villain yeah. with the way he uses fear to intimidate people and he like grows more powerful based off of people being afraid of him todd really really built this character from the ground up and he's said over the years he was inspired by dracula and phantom of the opera like you said scarecrow like he's pulling all these little bits and pieces of things to create this character Candyman can be a supervillain. Candyman can be this operatic tragic character that monster and Candyman can just be the straight up slasher horror movie villain like he's all those things in one and that's what's so cool about it yeah and it's great because he's not just the one thing which that's part of why i like this character a lot more than a lot of the other staple horror mascots of this era i just find the idea of the character to be so much more interesting and nuanced but he still has I guess, pun intended, his hooks. He still has his gimmicks. And the bees. Not the bees! Oh, no, not the bees! One thing you just can't overlook about Candyman is the tragedy of his story, right? And what's crazy is something very different than every other horror figure that we love for certain reasons. Candyman's is seeped specifically in American history. Yeah. A very, very big stain right, that most people don't like to talk about when it comes to American history. One thing that I, w- I really wanted to bring up, lynching didn't originate in you know America. So my father is a big collector of African-American art and all this stuff. And if, That's cool if shit. If y'all come over to the house, it's like a fucking museum. Like, it's crazy. But he has this book, and the book is about the history of lynching. But it tells this woven story through 
different mediums of art. You know, things that we love about horror, like, you know, you got to keep that one eye open. You know what I mean? It's hard to look at. Yeah. It's a must, right? Like it's, it's something that is, a, I guess, unnecessary, right? But um, when you think about Candyman, what was lynching in America representative of? It was representative of specifically the history against black men, like African-American mm-hmm. men. It was a form of emasculation, right? That's 100% what it was. So I think what's yeah. so crazy about Candyman's character is, yes, he had the vengeance aspect of it. You know, that's part of it. And the other part, when you watch the film and if you break it down, I, I had read this article years ago. I, uh, I try to watch Candyman at least once a year, but I read this article a couple of years ago and it talked about how it's also him through killing, trying to regain his masculinity, right? Something that was taken from him. Oh, interesting. And I think that's fucking profound. Yeah. That would explain the castration in a way, right? 100%. Yeah. We think about Emmett Teal, right? This is a little black boy. He was accused of whistling at a white woman at that time. And we know what happened to Emmett Teal. But what's crazy is he whistled, right? Tony Todd's character of Candyman, who was hired to do the art of this wealthy white guy of some sort, he actually impregnated this white woman. So that's like, You know, when you talk about that time period and what was probably for a man who looked like me, that was the biggest no-no. Yeah. You couldn't like white women back then. You know what I mean? Like that was the biggest taboo thing you could do specifically, I guess, in that region of the United States. But I think it's just crazy when you really think about it. I remember reading that in that article and I was like, man, that's some profound shit. You know what I mean? Like not only is it the vengeance piece, but it's also he's trying to recapture his masculinity that was taken from him. Mm-hmm. So with that idea, like the motivations between Candyman, so I, I like the movie. My problems with the movie aren't with the movie itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think the only problems I have with the movie are just, and again, it's more of a product of the time, and this is a 30-year-old movie. Some of the things felt a little dated, and I looked this up because I was just like, look, Aaron and I are like the whitest white boys ever, so like this movie has been picked apart. What else can be said about it by people far more qualified than us, but this is our perspective this is kelly's perspective so are the listeners who are loyal to us we're offering you like what we can offer you but there's plenty out there about this movie you know definitely look it up but one of the articles i did want to bring up specifically was from fangoria came out back in august uh, 2021 and it was i believe published right before nia da costa's candy man came out so it was kind of hyping up that movie but also talking about the original yeah sure and the title of the article is problematic films in defense of candy man 1992 by Sean Abley. He has this editorial called Problematic Films where uh, he invites a guest and they interact and it's almost like a back and forth interview style editorial. He brings on this guest and they talk about Candyman. But like one of the things that they talked about was that this movie is almost a great example. of This is a good start. This is a good start for getting more black representation and horror, getting more eyes on this kind of stuff that we need to be looking at more and examining from a cultural standpoint but also this was to this day we love tony todd we love Candyman because he is that popular of a slasher still but one of the things they brought up and i kind of thought about throughout this movie is almost all the violence and murders and really even just direct violence from Candyman himself is done on black characters 
And it's interesting looking at it now from a 2023 lens. I was hoping that English professor also got fucking gutted by Candyman <laughs> in this movie. And I was a little disappointed he didn't. Well, watch the first five minutes of the next movie and you'll get your wish. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I mean, at least that's cool. So maybe I'll YouTube that later. But yeah, like they were basically saying it's interesting that if anyone in the Cabrini Green summons him, he immediately like kills him or like in the case of that poor young boy castrates him. And like, it's horrific, it's violent, there's no escape. But then this white woman does the same thing, granted, in her apartment, but like, he takes this fascination with her. He's more like stalking her, and he's even showing these romantic feelings towards her in a way, and he's wanting her to join him in death, and like, they become the urban legend together. The article was just saying, like, there are problematic elements to that. And again, if, if you want to read in more detail and they explain it in better ways than I can, the name of the article again is Problematic Films in Defense of Candyman 1992 on Fangoria from August 2021. That was one of the things that I thought about while watching this. Is It's interesting that even that professor who studied him, and again, I know he gets killed now in the, the, the sequel, but in the realm of this movie alone, that professor like was fine for the most part. She's fine through this movie, and a more Candyman is more interested in her than killing her. He more wants to even just seduce her before they die together. Her friend seems to only die because she was there. She went to the apartment. Um, otherwise, she seems like she was fine. But all the people in Cabrini Green are immediately killed off as soon as he summoned, it sounds like. So wanted to get you guys' takes on that, because that was one of the things I did feel was a little dated, problematic, that it was more just... Why isn't he going after like the people in the high-rise apartments rather than just killing the people in his own, so to speak, chapel? I uh, I don't don't have an an exact answer to that specifically, but what I can speak to is I think Candyman is just a film of the time, and what I mean by that though is if y'all can name one or two off the top of your heads, because I can't off the top of my head, how many masters of horror did we have in the early nineties? that look like me. You know what I mean? Filmmakers. Yeah. That's why perspective and representation, not only in front of camera, but behind camera are so important. Yeah. And when I say it's a film of the time, this was a film written by a white man. And it was also screenplay written and directed by a white man, both British also, which is kind of weird, right? That they went with the stained American legacy or history. But also I commend that risky filmmaking in a way, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because cinema really is just in my blood. I'm able to take a step back and objectively look at things that maybe other people in my family might look at it and be like, mm, well, this is wrong and that's wrong and this is wrong. I really think that what you see later in Nia DaCosta's version, that's why perspective is so important, yeah. right? Those two men, there was something very clear when it comes to motivation of character and certain things that, well, yeah, maybe they didn't absolutely get it right. But I think they took a swing and, you know, I, I'm very, very happy with, you know, what was delivered. So, And then like in this article too, it kind of mirrors my own thoughts on it, which is why I'm, I'm constantly bringing it up. Yeah. By the way, he interviews comic creator William O. Tyler and William O. Tyler is a black queer film critic and comic creator. So look him up. He has a comic called We Belong which is a comics anthology, so FYI. But then when they're talking about it, they they follow that same idea. Like They ultimately like this movie and ultimately love it. They're just more like, we're old enough now, and this movie is old enough to where we can go back and point out the things that don't age well. And one of the things that resonated with me that they were talking about is the aspect of Candyman not showing up for so long is really great, but also like 
it's so focused on the story of this white woman for so long and with a movie that's so steeped in oppression and the setting it's in it's all kind of around her journey sure it feels touristy yeah yeah it feels touristy and virginia madison's character is kind of introduced to Candyman through all these killings that are happening and the killings and all the shitty things are at the expense of all like the black characters. And then of course there's the whole white savior thing with her character towards the end, which was criticism I saw kind of all over the place. Yeah. And I mean, hell we've brought up after this movie plenty of times. Patrick Bromley was on our hundredth episode when they talked about Candyman. They actually did a great discussion on the whole white savior thing as well. And ultimately the article was just like, you know, why couldn't you just change the skin color of this character? You could have done the exact same story. Maybe and switch the two, the assistant Bernadette and Helen, and switch them over. Bernadette is the main character and Helen is her partner. Well, thankfully, that is the dynamic of the Need the Costume movie. But at the same time, though, Virginia Madsen's, I mean, we've been singing Tony Todd's praises. Virginia Madsen's pretty fucking good in this movie, well, too. Great. I'm she's not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. For me, and I think it's just because y'all know film is my life. I'm like thinking and like I'm moving and I got something cool that I'm going to reveal at the end of this before we jump off. I think it's more a point to a bigger issue that's so much bigger than Candyman 1992. Yeah, It's a studio system. It's a film industry yeah. that permeates this churning machine of the white savior. That's true. Hey, well, who do you have as the lead? Oh, well, we got this black actor. Oh, well, we can't fucking sell that movie. Well, we got Virginia Madsen. Oh, man, Virginia Madsen. Yeah. Man, I like her. So I try to give credit where credit is due. But then also, if we're going to point the finger, which I'm not saying you're doing that, Derek, but I think a lot of the issues that maybe Candyman did have, it wasn't really Candyman's issue. True. It was, I think, issues of being a part of this system that almost failed narrative in a way, right? You know, now we're just getting to a place where we know that movies with black leads sell, you know? Yeah, Black Panther being a big one, but then also that Candyman remake, or excuse me, reimagining did incredibly well at the box office and it Mm -hmm. actually did really well critically as well. And it's because it's just a dope fucking movie and it wasn't the same, you know? If they had remade Candyman and it was the same shit, then Derek, I would be like, There's a fucking issue with Candyman. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to that point, like it's a miracle 1992 Candyman even fucking made it out and was this big of a movie. But you bring up great points. I would just implore that we look at a greater wrong, which is more the industry as a whole at that time. And in some ways still today, right? You know, we're just starting to see the push and to have an inclusion writer, which is clauses built into guild contracts that says, hey, if I'm working on this set, it's got to be 50% people of color. You have to give yeah. opportunity, even at you know in a writing room. The greatest thing about cinema that I think that I hold in my heart is unlike every other art form, and I want y'all to really think about this. This is crazy when you really think about it. Cinema's been around a little bit over 100 years, right? Mm-hmm. The moving picture. Oral history has been around for fucking thousands of years. Books have been around for thousands of years. Pictures, paintings sculptures, thousands of years. It's crazy that this industry that we love so much, the moving image, is still a baby. It's in its infancy, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I think it's great to look at Candyman in 92, to Candyman in, correct me if I'm wrong, was it 20... 2021. 2021, that's what I thought. Shit, in the middle of COVID, crazy. So yep. to see such a difference, 
it's dope to see progression in some way as a whole, right? Because I can promise you, and Derek will talk more later about it, that 2021 Candyman could not and would not have been made in 1992. No. Yeah. And that's what's dope. Well, and that's kind of what this article even ends on, is because they even talk about Nia DaCosta's movie, and they're like, this Candyman was the foundation, 92, and Definitely. Nia DaCosta's going to take it over like the goal line. And they even say, like, 92 Candyman is absolutely defendable. Yeah. It's absolutely, like, a great movie and yeah. important. It's just, it is important to also look at things under the modern lens. But otherwise, I think it's a great movie. No, that's, that's great perspective. And to that point, this is kind of a chicken-egg thing that we talked about with the last movie, which was the 1999 Haunting. <laughs> Oh my god, are you really finding a way to compare Candyman 92 to the haunting of 1999? No, I'm finding a way to compare our discussion how we're looking at these <laughs> I know. things. I'm just messing with you. You know, the question that we had at the end was do we think that that movie would be better regarded if it was a different title and it wasn't like explicitly marketed as this is a remake of this famous movie and right. story and blah, blah, blah? Like, would we look back on it with less derision than we currently do? And the chicken and egg that I brought up was, well, the only reason I think it would work is because they had such a big name cast and was marketed to hell and back and was this big studio thing. And so it filled theaters, butts got in seats and it made a lot of money and it was successful by that measure. But at the same time, if it didn't have that, the movie wouldn't have been successful if it didn't have the cast, if it didn't have the marketing. And so the Nia DaCosta one, just to kind of roll back to what you said a second ago. I don't think the Nia DaCosta one could have been made in 1992 because fundamentally so much of that story, that particular entry, is predicated on the fact that over the last 30 fucking years of American history, not a goddamn thing has changed. And in a lot of ways, things have gotten worse. And so I don't think that that movie could exist in 1992 because... Literally, it's built on the foundation that since 1992, this is production history of the first Candyman. Rodney King's beating happened just a few months before this production started. And then the fucking acquittal happened literally just two or three weeks after production ended. And then the riots started. This movie is literally being made as that fucking earth-shattering shit is happening. And then it comes out in the midst of all of that. So the fact that there is some like bleed over in terms of real life influencing art, etc. The new movie, again, it, it couldn't exist without the last 30 years worth of history. Okay, to step back even further, if we're still talking about, you know, how do we feel about Candyman specifically, mostly perpetrating his violence on other black people. Again, like Kelly said, I don't have a fucking answer for this, right? I don't think any of us have answers for this. We can just share our thoughts. What I find to be interesting about it is, like I mentioned, once that genie is out of the bottle, it's kind of unstoppable. But I don't think, from everything I recall, I'm I'm playing the movie back in my head. You know, I don't really ever seem to recall any of the black residents of Cabrini Green calling up Candyman. He was never summoned by them. True. If anything, it was this, we have to keep the dragon at bay. We have to keep the sun god placated. We have to offer up candy and razor blades, and we have to occasionally offer a sacrifice. And that's kind of how the actual Clive Barker story goes, is the woman with the baby 
ultimately, while Helen's there, she hears all the screaming. She goes around. The police are there. The baby's been brutally slaughtered in the house. They're dragging the mom out. She goes back the next day, and she sees the mom and the rest of the residents of the little slum area doing a funeral procession with the baby's casket. She breaks into the gross abandoned apartment with all the graffiti and finds the baby's body there and not in the casket. And it was literally this wicker man kind of thing of like, we're going to offer this sacrifice of flesh to appease the candy man and keep him away from the rest of us. You don't ever see anybody from the towers calling up candy man. He is this thing that they fear. He is this thing that they live in the midst of, right? He is this shadow that is kind of constantly over their lives and they do what they can to not talk about him, not pay attention to him, not give him power to ignore that he exists as this force. And to me, it feels like one of those things where he only starts causing harm, going on a rampage, etc., when he is called upon by, again, this woman who's digging into shit she doesn't need to be digging into. She has this weird kind of arrogant curiosity of, I'm going to dip my hands into this thing that I don't know anything about that isn't for me because I just have to know. And it very much feels to me like a, see what I did? This is all your fault. This person's fucking dead. This person's fucking dead. You're now framed for their murders. All this could have been avoided. Your options are, come with me, and this can all be over. Or you can keep fighting, and more innocent people are going to keep getting fucking killed because of your arrogant decisions. What is it? Do you want to keep causing bloodshed, or do you just want to, like, come with me and let's be together fulfill like my ultimate what i've been wanting this whole entire time which is just to be loved those are your options and helen obviously chooses be my victim (laughs) be my victim yeah well she ironically does but she chooses to defy him and save the baby you know so she chooses to like in a way save this last innocent victim but at the cost of her own life but that kind of closes the loop you know she then kind of becomes her own urban legend at the end for trevor and so now it spins off into this other direction but to me it seemed more like the violence that was being done against other black characters in that community at cabrini green It was not a, like, vengeful, like, I'm going to get these people. I'm going to show them whatever. Like, this is punishment. It was never done in that way. It was purely to, like, fuck with this woman who stepped past her lane. And because of her arrogance and her curiosity and her weird, selfish need to know, this was, okay, cool. I'll show you everything you want to see, but, like, here's the cost. And this person's dead. And this person's life is fucked up. It is very much a punishment to her. Right. It's obviously more of a punishment to the people who lost their lives. But like, it is a punishment to her specifically more than it is a targeted thing to those people who were victims. Because despite her arrogance and even ignorance, especially in the beginning of the movie, she does care. She does care about what happens to these people. In the way that like all of us bleeding heart liberal white people care and try to do things and like oh here's our little twitter thing like yay this is bad (laughs) how often are you putting your money where your mouth is and going down to a fucking shelter and working and volunteering for the day and not just trying to you know take a picture next to whatever and be like i'm doing so much good anyway again trying to look at okay some credit where credit is due a little bit like kelly said steps toward where we need to be Things that were not necessarily being done at the time, 
two things I found a little bit interesting were, one, the producers were kind of concerned that the script's depictions of black life in Chicago, they were worried that people were going to be upset by things that they deemed to be stereotypical or offensive, right? So the studio arranged for the director to like meet with an NAACP committee. Uh, I didn't know that. To actually talk through the script and the story and get their approval, which again, what a weird passive aggressive way of, we don't want people to be mad at us, right? Yeah. But it was interesting because the committee was largely like, uh, why can't a black actor be a villain or a ghost or whatever? Like, black actors should be allowed to play whatever they want to. What's the issue here? It seems like it would be more harmful to be like, black actors cannot ever be shown to be complicated, nuanced, sometimes shitty characters who are violent and are villains sometimes. It was interesting that, like, that was their response. You know what? One of the most badass action movie villains of any movie is fucking wesley snipes and demolition man oh, yeah. yeah fucking rules in that movie love it love that movie. <laughs> it's such a good movie it's <laughs> it's so good to see who was speaking out about this movie at the time one notable person that i like wrote down specifically was carl franklin who directed one false move and devil in a blue dress and has done tons of tv shit since he was one of the people specifically that was like I don't know how I feel about this movie. It's kind of fucked up. So it's interesting that people were talking about this movie. It at least sparked some conversation to happen, which, good or bad, I think, personally, the movies that have the most staying power and the movies that sit with us the longest are the ones where we actually fucking leave the theater and we want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just a movie that is literally fucking out of your head by the time that you get home. It's fun in the moment and then it just evaporates. Movies that you want to actually discuss with somebody afterward are the ones that stick with you, and good or bad, I think that's to be noted for sure. The other thing I would say, too, again, credit where credit's due, initially, and this is the whole weird casting chain, so Bernard Rose, at the time, married to British actress Alexander Pig, his best friend, Danny Houston. Son of John Houston, brother of Angelica Houston. And Jack. Yes, and Jack is all up in that chain too, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Houstons. He was married to Virginia Madsen at the time. Oh. Virginia Madsen was also best friends with Alexander Pig. They were couple friends, all of them, right? And when they were setting up this movie, the initial idea was for Alexander Pig to play Helen and for Virginia Madsen to play Bernadette. Rose thought about this, and he was like, you know... It makes sense. And if I'm setting this movie in Chicago and it's going to have all these elements of the black community and all this race stuff, it's going to be weird if these two characters are both white women. And it would cause more interesting wrinkles and perspectives if Bernadette, at least, is African-American, right? Let's rework this character. And that'll at least cause some interesting story friction to happen. They changed that character. I believe they went ahead and cast Casey Lemons. And so now all of a sudden, Virginia Madsen doesn't have a role. Alexander Pig learns, oh, I'm pregnant. Bernard Rose and I are going to have a baby. So she drops and is like, yo, I guess Virginia Madsen, like, you have to take this lead role. I don't want anybody else to play this, but you, it makes sense. So that's how Virginia Madsen got this lead role. But Casey Lemons specifically came on to this. Most people will recognize her from 90s stuff, right? She was in a lot of good shit. She was in a lot of horror, too, which is the other cool thing, like Vampire's Kiss, Silence of the Lambs, 
She's in fucking Hard Target. Again, another 90s crazy action movie specifically set in New Orleans. I forgot it said New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wilford Brimley is crazy Cajun Uncle Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one, too, where Van Damme fucking punches out the snake. Yeah, that's the scene I remember. <laughs> that yeah. movie's fucking buck wild, y'all. He, like, roundhouse kick spins <laughs> a fucking canister of gasoline at a guy on a motorcycle, shoots it midair, and blows it up. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. John Woo, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Casey Lemons is really, first and foremost, a writer-director and has been for most of her career now totality i saw her first major picture director oil debut was eve's bayou yeah which is a fucking awesome movie i love the fuck out of eve's bayou criterion actually just put that out recently by the way excellent movie but she's done a shit ton of tv other movies and stuff she did some of luke cage she just did harriet so like at this time she was already really spinning her wheels on writing and trying to get into directing and everything else. Bernard Rose immediately kind of gravitated toward Lemons a lot. They got along, and they kind of developed a good rapport and a creative trust and everything. Lemons kind of ended up being essentially a cultural consultant on the script, and was really right there to kind of talk through the stuff with Bernard Rose, especially in the light of Rodney King's beating had like just happened, and everything was tense and on edge. At least they made a concerted effort to, like, try to get some of this stuff right. Now, again, we look back on it now with our modern eyes, and a lot of it is like, oh, yeah, this is pretty stereotypy in a lot of ways. But at least there was good intent from all sides on this, and that he actually purposely wanted people of color involved in making sure that things did not feel off. And again, to tell you just how fucking close all this was to Rodney King, that whole denouement scene at the cemetery at the end, that was a pickup shot that they did in Inglewood in early 92. Didn't know that either. Yeah, Yeah, that cemetery's in Inglewood. Literally like two weeks later is when the fucking cops were acquitted and the riots started in LA. Wow. They just barely got this movie fucking finished before all that happened. Which, again... That whole fucking intro in this movie where he does that first kind of little monologue narration and the bees are swarming across Chicago is so fucking cool and yeah. spooky. Such a good introduction to like what we're about to witness. Yeah, and all that shit was done practically too. This movie didn't have a huge budget, so they were like, let's do as much shit in camera and practical as we possibly can instead of doing expensive opticals and everything on the back. And it's so like a lot of the bee stuff was done with a lot of camera trickery and things like that. A story everyone knows in every movie podcast on the planet has probably brought up as those were real bees on Tony Todd, and he actually had them in his mouth. There's lots of fucking information on the bees. You want to know anything about the fucking bees, you can find (laughs) that information. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't the joke, or not even a joke, was it, I'll eat the bees, but for every sting, I get another $1,000 or something like that. Uh And he did it, and he got stung a few times, but he did it. I have read anywhere from like 23 to 26. Yeah. So he he got an extra chunk of money for doing that. But no, there's all kinds of crazy shit. Like, He had this fucking weird throat guard thing that he had to put in his mouth to keep the bees from, like, going down his throat. That's crazy. They bred the bees, and the ones that they used in the movie were young, newly hatched. They don't really fly, and they don't really sting. They can sting, 
but when they're at that state of development, they usually don't. So that's the specific type of bee that they were using. They used pheromones of the queen bee to, like, mist all over Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen. Man, I want to know how much they spent on the bee people. (laughs) Oh, bee guy. It was one dude. Oh, it was one guy? His name was, like, Norman Gary or something. He was the bee wrangler. I'm just assuming it's, like, a Tiger King guy who, like, somehow got his way onto this movie set. They're like, yeah, okay, you're our bee guy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, as far as production stuff goes, the couple things I wrote down, so... It's wild to me how Cabrini Green really has such a fucking huge presence in this movie. Yeah. And in reality, they only shot there three days. And that's it. Interesting. Everything else, like the inside of all the apartments, all of the hallway stuff, like all that was just sound stages in Hollywood. All that was sets. They only actually shot in Cabrini Green for three days. The first day that they were there, Madsen and Todd, just went in plain clothes just to like walk around and talk to people and go check out the site and just kind of take it in and see everything. Casey Lemons was there as well, too. So, I mean, the three of them were all there and Virginia Madsen really was affected by it. And it kind of changed her perspective on a lot of shit. Apparently those projects were all demolished in 2011. And again, Derek, that whole aspect kind of plays into the, New movie as well, too. I knew about that because I know I know the general premise. I watched some of the uh, previews for the new one, and I knew about that aspect of the new movie. I just don't know what happens through the whole thing. But yeah, Virginia Madsen, she kind of used a lot of how she felt on that one initial visit to kind of inform her character some. And it, apparently, like I said, it really affected her real life outlook on things. Despite being kind of like, you know, iffy about going there and um, kind of scared, like she kind of realized like, oh, being scared for like a lot of bullshit reasons, a, but she realized too, like everybody there was nice and welcoming. And I can't say that any of these people would be treated the same if they came to the places I hung out, you know, so that changed her perspective a lot as well. And she kind of used that awareness to like guide that character's journey throughout the course of the movie. The entire backstory for Candyman was all stuff that Todd came up with himself. You know, None of that is in the script. That's all That's stuff that cool. he came up with, and they worked into the script. The character's real name, in air quotes, was something different. It was like Granville T. Candyman or something, which obviously that got changed you know, later down the road. But pretty much all the rest of the character's story was all Tony Todd coming up with it. Amazing. Yeah. I love that he devoted yeah. so much time to this character. Yeah. Well, he drew on a lot of his own experience, too, because, I mean, he was a stage actor, a professionally trained Shakespearean actor as well, too. So, I mean, that's why there's so many Shakespeare quotes in the dialogue. You know, there's literally like sweets for the sweet is from Hamlet. So there's a lot of that that's in there as well, too. There's this kind of all around makeup and effects and model maker guru guy named Bob Keane. He worked on. All the original Star Wars movies, Superman, Alien, Dark Crystal, Krull, Life Force, all the Hellraiser movies, Never Ending Story. We've covered a lot of these movies. Waxwork yeah. 1 and 2, Nightbreed, Hardware, Warlock 2, Event Horizon, Dog Soldiers. This guy's worked on a shit ton of stuff. He and Tony Todd worked pretty hand in hand to design the look of the character, the costuming. The like chest piece that has the exposed rib cage that they put the bees on and they figured all that shit out. 
he tried to design an animatronic arm that had the hook. The arm's motion just didn't quite work, so they were like, eh, fuck it, we'll figure something else out. I think the only thing that I thought was kind of goofy was Tony Todd did want an eye patch originally. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little bit too far. Fucking pirate. <laughs> hey, Tony, we love your creative juices, but let's let's dial back maybe just a tad bit more. <laughs> well, I love that it's oh, giant fur lined coat. Cool. Herringbone pants. No problem. Giant fucking hook. Awesome. Rib cage covered in bees. Excellent. Eye patch. Back it up. <laughs> that's, that's a little too much. <laughs> well, and I love, too, the whole fan theory. Also, too, with this being based off of a story from Clyde Barker, but the fan theory that Candyman is a Cenobite or an, in the same universe as Cenobites, and he operates his own corner of hell in a way. Yeah. I, I saw that fan theory come up again when I was looking stuff up for this movie. I don't want to go off on topic too much, but I actually enjoyed that Hulu Hellraiser. Oh, yeah. But, I, you know, I will always be, I don't give a fuck. I mean, yes, some of those straight-to-DVDs got kind of bad, but I'm a Hellraiser fan through and through. Oh, yeah. I've always been intrigued by Cenobites. But, you know, Hellraiser is that one thing for me. You know, I think Michael Myers got really stale. Some of the new David Gordon Green shit is actually pretty good. The Halloween Ends was trash to me. I don't know if I'm if I'm saying too much by saying that. No, no, no. Keep rolling. <laughs> you know, but think about Freddy. You know, okay, we, we kind of had the ups and downs. But I feel like, to me, up until at least Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, Hellraiser 4, Bloodline, I, I really enjoyed Bloodline too. I like all those first four. All the, the four theatrical ones I still will stand by. Those first four are solid. I just feel like, man, if you give us a little bit more, I just love what you just said, what y'all just said. And I hope that they keep digging with Hellraiser because that's that thing that if we keep excavating, yeah. you can start really going deep. There's so much room. Yeah. There's so much room to play. Give me the Event Horizon Hellraiser crossover. <laughs> Hell. Give me the Event Horizon Candyman Hellraiser crossover. Let's just confirm <laughs> that they're all in the same universe. That'd be cool. So the production commissioned the hook from this local blacksmith. That's fucking cool. But he refused to sell it to them. God damn it. Once he found <laughs> out that they were making a fucking Clive Barker movie because he was a devout Christian and was like, Oh, God oh, damn it. I'm not fucking selling this to y'all. Like I mentioned, Norman Gary was the bee guy. They used 200,000 real bees. Most of the cast and crew was wearing protective suits while they were filming that sequence. What about the sequence where he kisses Helen? Is she protected? She's getting bees on the face, yeah. Oh, she is getting bees on the face, too. Okay. Yeah, and so here's the other wrinkle. Virginia Madsen was allegedly hypnotized for all of her scenes with Tony Todd, both to, like, calm her and kind of help in her performance. This is not new. Yeah. Since this is an audio forum, Y'all both Kelly both and I at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. Cocked our heads like what? <laughs> I never heard that. I never heard that. It's something I've read about other people doing other productions. Like Werner Herzog, for instance, for this movie Heart of Glass, he hypnotized everybody, right? Yeah, I could see his weird ass doing it, but Yeah. Werner Herzog, we need to get the <laughs> hypnotist in for the scene. There is no way that you can truly deliver the emotional impact of this movie unless you are on the hypno. I hate cowards. I'm Werner Herzog, and this is... <laughs> anyway, so the other thing was this. Virginia Madsen 
crazy allergic to fucking insect stings, apparently. Uh Uh-oh. She initially was like, oh, I can't do the role because of that obvious reason. And they, like, literally sent her to UCLA to, like, get tested. And it turns out she was more allergic to wasp stings than bee stings, but still, right? Which is another reason why they went with these younger bees that would not be so prone to stinging. Did she get stung like he did in that scene? Not that I read, but both of them had to, like, really fucking zen out to do it. Like, Tony Todd talked about they, like, put the mouth guard in. They put the pheromones on him, and he literally just had to sit there. It took, like, 30 fucking minutes for these bees to, like, get around his mouth and get in his mouth so they can shoot that scene. And by the time that he, like, leans over on top of her and the bees all pour out, he said he was just completely fucking disassociated. Completely detached and fully zinned out for that entire scene, which is why it's so weird, right? That is the magic of practicality. That is the magic of practical scenes. That scene would not have been as effective if it wasn't done practically. Oh, yeah. Was it necessary to do it that way? Absolutely not. But I would say it's way more memorable of a scene because it's actual fucking bees and they're actually doing that. Well, I like to Rose's instinct was well all these other fucking horror movies are like women running around screaming hence the term scream queens right i want to do like the opposite of that so like let's have her like hypnotized and kind of paralyzed by fear and lust and i want to go for this more subdued trance-like kind of thing than just her constantly fucking running around screaming did you guys get the impression was there like an element of this movie where not only was he trying to get her to join him but almost what ultimately happens during the end, turn her into part of the Candyman being becoming Candy Woman in a way because he basically hypnotizes her two or three times in this movie and she wakes up having committed a ridiculously horrific bloody crime kind of under his power, under his sway. I mean, I can imagine the state he's in. It's probably lonely, right? Being a fucking revenant ghost and all. So yeah, he probably wants somebody to be with him. I don't know. Was he trying to turn her into the new Candyman? Weird way of like taking his place? No, I don't think making her take his place and become the new Candyman is right. just, just joining him in that state. Right. Being, you know? Yeah. The big giant bonfire at the end was managed by the same team behind Backdraft. So the fire scene was all very safe, well-regulated and everything. I listened to the commentary track that must have been recorded a couple of years back when Scream Factory put out their Blu-ray. They say at the beginning, 4K, Ultra HD, but then they are referring to shit that happened years ago. I think this was maybe for the first Blu-ray, and they're just saying that because it was like a 4K restoration, right? But that same commentary got carried over to the current 4K, which Arrow and Scream Factory put out their own 4Ks this past year. The Arrow one is obviously the UK release, which that's what I bought. I got that one imported, which it's pretty funny because it's fucking Bernard Rose and Tony Todd on the commentary. And initially it's just Rose being like, oh yes, I'm here by myself. Oh yeah, oh no, here's Tony Todd. Tony Todd just be like, what's up, motherfuckers? It starts off pretty funny, but it literally is just them griping about Avengers Endgame and A Quiet Place. There's so little discussion about Candyman that it's kind of funny. But one thing that was funny was as they were watching the movie, Bernard Rose kept saying, oh, this bit right here, this was very dangerous. This whole sequence was very difficult to film when we had to shoot it because of the danger involved. And Tony Todd just being like, 
And you didn't fucking tell me this on the day? Like, what the fuck? Y'all didn't tell me this was dangerous. <laughs> he can't, like, every time, it's just like, God damn it. Y'all didn't say shit to me about how this was dangerous. So, yeah, the bonfire was another one of those things. Very well planned. Very safe, all things considered. But, yeah, they were like, this was very difficult to do. There was a lot of danger. There was a lot of potential for danger and harm. And Tony Todd was just like, y'all covered me. And fucking fire jail and threw me in instead. Just go. <laughs> Fuck off. Well, the, the next question is that did they like also have her go into the fucking bonfire too? Yeah, correctly? they were both in there. Yeah. Did they have a fucking baby set in there? So the bonfire is totally artificial, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What they're in is like a very specific frame that is a steel beam holding up all this other bullshit. There's so much space. And the camera and the lens that they're using is all shot in a way where it seems like it's very tight and shallow, but there's tons of space for them to move around and the flames are nowhere near them. I like that uh, Philip Glass apparently was like, yeah, sure, I'll do this movie, I'll score it, and still to this day is like, I think this movie's fucking trash because I hate horror movies. This is one of my favorite movie scores of all time, period, full stop. I love this fucking score. I listen yeah. to it a lot. And I cannot believe Philip Glass is like, oh, fuck horror movies. I don't like this. Just goddamn it. It has more identity. Yeah. It seems like, you know, most horror scores are kind of throwaways in a way. This one was very like nuanced and it fit to the overarching history. You know what I mean? It felt yeah. like there was more history to that. But I was just agreeing with Manning. It's definitely one of my favorites when it comes to, to the horror genre. The organs are very evocative of the religious aspect of this movie and the story yeah and it's very hypnotic in the way that it just constantly cycles and repeats and folds in on itself and the chanting and the choir like all of that for as much as philip glass is like oh this movie's fucking rubbish you made the most hyper specific thematic (laughs) score to a fucking movie that i can possibly think of that works perfectly and is incredibly identifiable, like you said, Kelly. Just you can't mistake that for anything else. Like if you take out the obvious, like if you take out those identifiers, you could mix and match basically yeah. any of the Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street scores, <laughs> and like you would not know the fucking difference. But like you can't fucking confuse <laughs> Candyman for anything. Else. Even uh, Freddy vs. Jason just does the. Freddy vs. Jason has a lot of new metal in it. Well. Yeah, a lot of yeah, new metal. And that that's the thing with this score is when this movie started, I was expecting more, I don't know, like, and th- maybe this is just, again, my own ignorance or racism. Like, I was expecting more of an urban feel to it. So when the organs and all that stuff starts playing and it's more church-like, but supernaturally church-like, almost even borderline romantic gothic, I was blown away. And at first it took me by surprise. And I was like, I don't know if I like this vibes well with this movie. But then by the end of the movie, I was like, this score fucking rules and is haunting as shit. What you need 
is a movie I love that I think is legitimately fucking good movie. Speaking of Ernest Dickerson that I mentioned earlier and has a fucking awesome soundtrack to it is motherfucking bones i knew you were gonna say that bones. movie bones is, is great yeah. yeah bones is good i've looked over the soundtrack and it's pretty fucking rad <laughs> yeah <laughs> that makes a fun weird double feature with Candyman in a lot of ways but that's the campier 90s tm version of this to a t i had some like weird shit about bernard rose and i don't know that i want to bother talking with any of this necessarily it's just wild stuff like this fucking guy won a BBC competition when he was 15 and had his short films shown on TV across the UK in 1975. And then literally four years later, while he's in film school, is working on The Muppet Show and worked on Dark Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> what? The fuck? Yeah. They were shooting those at Elstree in Borehamwood, which was the same exact town where they shot The Haunting. All the like sets and everything that they built for yeah. that just... Two movies ago, we were literally talking about the same thing. Bernard Rose was one of the first pioneers of music videos, notoriously directed the video for Frankie Goes to Hollywood's hit, Relax. Breathe deeply. I like this song. Of course you do. Hello, Derek. Hello. Welcome to your relaxation time. Let this wonderful 80s classic soothe you. Just a nice, warm, happy time. Happy. 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 <laughs> Nothing to worry about at all. Just relax. He made a fucking super cool dark fantasy movie in 88 called Paper House. And that's probably his audition for Candyman, I would say. Like, that movie does a lot of blending the real world and the dream world and all these things back and forth. So, like, I could see Clive Barker watching that and be like, okay, yeah, this guy can do it. And two, like, he just met Barker by chance, you know, in L.A. when he was coming off of Nightbreed and was like, yo, I like The Forbidden a lot. Can I make this? And Barker was like, sure, have at it. Enjoy. And so this was Bernard Rose's first screenplay that he wrote as well, too. Amazing. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And this, I guess, is just for y'all, but other weird shit. Bernard Rose, his filmography is really fucking weird, by the way. He was a very early pioneer of digital filmmaking in the early 2000s when it was all like DV fucking handy cams and shit. But he made this movie that Arrow actually just put out on Blu-ray. I saw years ago, and I want to rewatch, called Ivan's Ecstasy, like X-T-C, that came out in 2000. And it's a version of Tolstoy, the death of Ivan Ilyich. But it's like set in Hollywood with Danny Houston and Peter Weller, mm. Valeria Galino from fucking Big Top Pee Wee, and like lots of other very specific weird people like... Jim Henson's daughter, Lisa Henson, the CEO of the Henson Company, she's acting in this movie, has a lot of weird meta people in it. And then he also did this Frankenstein adaptation in 2015, also starring Danny Houston and Carrie Ann Moss. He is Victor Frankenstein and she is Elizabeth and they're married and they resurrect this dead body. Tony Todd is in it. He plays the blind homeless man who talks to Frankenstein while he's running amok. 
And McKenna Grace, who plays young Theo in Haunting of Hill House, Derek, she's the little girl that he finds that he fucking chucks her in the river. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> weird career. Weird shit. Ultimately, yeah, the movie debuts at TIFF on September 11th in 1992. That's weird. We're recording this on the 13th. So, like, literally 31 years ago, Candyman came out. It went wide in October of that year. It earned... 26 million on its nine million dollar budget so i mean this movie was a hit it came out the same year as another clive barker movie in air quotes hellraiser 3 speaking of hellraiser (laughs) there is an unrated uk version of this movie and apparently the only difference is that the doctor's murder the therapist guy his murder is way more fucking full frontal gruesome in the unrated version And then the U.S. rated R cut just kind of cuts back to Virginia Madsen as they're like splattering her with blood offset. As far as the cast goes, we've talked about, you know, most people. Virginia Madsen, we actually just brought up on our last episode because she's in the first four minutes of the fucking haunting. She is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, she's like the bitchy sister. Up to this point, she had been in Dune, Zombie High, Highlander 2, and she had done a couple of other things, but like this was the star making thing for her. Dune and Highlander 2. Isn't Highlander 2 also fucking bug nuts? Oh, Highlander 2 is fucking insano. <laughs> and then after Candyman, she's in The Prophecy, which is also fucking insano. That's the one where Christopher Walken plays Gabriel, who's cast down from heaven. Fucking Vigo Mortensen is Satan. It's so, yeah. that movie's fucking goofy as hell. <laughs> and then, yeah, obviously, like Virginia Madsen's in Sideways and she's in the new Swamp Thing show. I say new. She's in the Swamp Thing show that was really good for one season and got canceled. Apparently, in all the shuffle of actors and actresses in and out of this movie, if Madsen had not been available, apparently the producer wanted to go with a completely unknown actress who had only done some TV stuff up to this point, who was in her mid-twenties, named Sandra Bullock. That could have been like a whole different trajectory. I don't know if she could have pulled it off. At that point in her career, I don't know. especially, I, you know, no idea. Tony Todd, too, this was an early interesting part of his career because he had been in Platoon, Bird, which is the like Clint Eastwood, Charlie Bird movie, and the remake of Night of the Living Dead, yeah. where he plays Ben. That's the other movie I remember him, yeah. That's all he had really been in up to this point, and obviously, too, this movie was a huge career turn for him as well, which lots of people told him, don't do this. Don't take this fucking role. You're going to regret it. You're going to get typecast. You're only going to be in horror shit. You don't want to do this. Lol. <laughs> now his entire career is this. And to a degree, those people were right. Yeah. He did just get typecast in horror shit, but like, it's worked out. And he seems to enjoy it. He seems yeah. totally on board with a lot of the stuff he's doing. Yeah. Random side note, because I know y- y'all are both some gamers too, but you know, he's the voice of Venom in the new Spider-Man 2 game. Oh yeah, uh-huh. can't wait. Yep. My homie was at Comic-Con. He lives in San Diego, but because of the strikes and things like that, there are certain things that were able to go, but he said Tony Todd was there and he sent me a picture of Tony Todd at the panel for Spider-Man 2 and he said it was fucking wicked. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I can't wait to hear his voice as Venom in that. Just kicking fucking Peter Parker's dick in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After this, Tony Todd had a fucking rad next decade because he's in The Crow, The Rock, so Wishmaster. He's in a lot of Star Trek. He's in a shitload of Star Trek. Like, every variation of Star Trek stuff he was in for the next 30 years. 
like you mentioned, he's in the Final Destination movies. He's kind of the main harbinger of doom, potentially the devil, question mark, potentially death itself, question mark. He's in Hatchet. He's in Candy Corn, Hellblazers. He's been in a bunch of recent stuff. Here's our Batman ding, ding, ding for this episode. He's the voice of Astaroth in Batman the Brave and the Bold. I know in some of the uh, animated stuff, he's voiced Darkseid as well, which Tony Todd yeah. is a great voice for Darkseid. Yeah. Super random. Was he the voice of Darkseid in Snyder's cut? I don't think so. I wouldn't doubt it. If yeah, I'm, I'm not I really a thousand percent sure, it, but I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I don't know. Okay. Because all that shit got changed up anyway exactly. yeah. from movie yeah. to movie. Because I don't even think Darkseid had any lines of dialogue in the theatrical cut, no. right? No. So I don't know if Tony Todd was even originally Darkseid or if they just got him to do some lines for the Snyder cut that they finished. You know, I don't know. He was Darkseid in like, I think, three or four DC animated movies up until it would 2020. Make sense. So, yeah. like, they might have got him on for that. Yeah. Here's some wild shit. You know who the studio's first choice was to play Candyman? And then they quickly realized how insanely out of their fucking budget range he was by this point in his career? Fucking Eddie Murphy. <laughs> right? Both of y'all are just like, what? <laughs> yeah. A, Eddie Murphy is five foot four. B. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he would have cost $20 million at this point in his career. Wow. There's no fucking way, right? There's no way. To Bernard Rose's credit, apparently, like, he honed in on Tony Todd pretty early. Tony Todd wanted this role. They met once or twice and was like, yeah, done. You're cast. Whatever. I don't give a shit what the studio says. <laughs> you're six foot five. You're incredibly handsome and athletic. And you have the best fucking voice in the industry. Yes, you're playing Candyman, goddammit. I love that Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd took ballroom dancing lessons together to, like, develop their romantic connection. Oh, wow. Yeah. Talked about Casey Lemons already. Xander Berkeley plays Helen's shitty husband, Trevor. Jesus Christ, man. Looked up Xander Berkeley's IMDb. That guy, he has 275 credits to his name. He's one of those that guy actors that I guarantee listeners, you have fucking seen him in probably half a dozen movies and didn't even realize it. Isn't he the asshole dad in uh, Taken? Yeah. He's also the asshole foster dad in Terminator 2. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's in that. A Few Good Men. He's in Heat. He's in Gattaca, Sid and Nancy. Hell, he was literally just in this past season of Mandalorian unfucking recognizable playing super old EU character that has been around for 30 fucking years and they're just now like bringing that character back into canon again but with the makeup and the hairstyling and the mustache and everything like I had no fucking clue that's who he was uh. Vanessa Williams plays Anne Marie and she's basically I'm I'm going to say like she is the only actor from this movie that comes back for the Nia DaCosta sequel. And I'll leave it at that, Derek, because I want you to like see that in and of itself. But she is also in a favorite of mine, New Jack City, and she is smoking fucking hot. Hey, <laughs> uh, but uh, she went on to have an insanely good television career. Every fucking show you can think of from the last 30 years she's been in. And she also got into that Hallmark holiday movie, Grift, as well. She's done a ton of those and has probably made a shitload of money off of them. 
The little boy in the movie, Jake, is played by Dewan Guy. This was his debut. He was also in a lot of TV through the 90s that we watched growing up. He was in Little Giants. He's in Baby Boy. Another good child performance, by the way. I oh, thought he did great. a good job. Apparently, yeah. they literally jokingly called him One Take Jake because he was that fucking good. He's in this fucking made-for-TV movie that I remember watching at my grandfather's house. I just remember my grandfather being like, black guys as cowboys, what is this? And then we sat and watched the entire movie because it was actually pretty fucking good. That's just my (laughs) racist grandfather for you because, you know, most cowboys were black, turns out. But this was the Cherokee Kid. This was a made-for-TV Western starring Sinbad, Ernie Hudson, Gregory Hines, and (laughs) Dean Martinez. And then, like, James Coburn is the villain, and Burt Reynolds is the crazy old mountain man who is kind of the father figure to Sinbad in the movie. What? It's fucking wild, <laughs> but I remember watching this okay. and being like, hell yeah, fucking cowboys. Dewan Guy was apparently a fucking little boss while they were filming this movie. He was not scared of anything. Did great. They go to the fucking cast and crew screening for the movie. And literally, like, as soon as his name came up in the opening credits, he got scared and was like, I'm out, bye. And he left. And his mom was like, no, 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 stay. And, like, every time that he had some scenes, they, like, brought him back in and he would watch his scenes and then he would leave again. (laughs) So that kind of cracked me up that during filming, when he was actually there with all this crazy shit, didn't affect him at all. But, like, actually seeing the movie bugged him. That reminds me of, like, when I volunteered, I think, in nursing school and to give flu shots to uh, kids at a uh, elementary school and it was always fun to watch the kids line up because like towards the back of the line they'd always act all tough and it was always the popular kids and then sure as shit as soon as you pull little, the needle out uh-huh. they break down and cry and start trying to get out of it and- i wonder how uh normal that is because like i have a i have a good friend he's out in atlanta and he does a lot of acting but he will not watch fucking horror movies at all he's like complete opposite of me but he's acted in them. I think that there's something, I don't know, there's a dynamic there, I guess. That's kind of cool. I just wonder how many actors actually fall in that category. Because you do hear that a lot. Over the course of just us doing this show, I've seen so many people say and like heard in so many interviews, people being like, oh yeah, I'm the star of this horror movie, but like, I really don't like fucking horror movies. It's just one of those things where I think a lot of it is, well, this is my job. This is work. This is a thing I do. Exactly. I know it's all fake. Just another day. Yeah. I'm not seeing 99% of what's going on into yeah. like the actual bullshit of this versus I'm here in this fucking dark room and I'm captive audience and I can't go anywhere and I'm like stuck having to deal with this, right? Like, yeah. I think that that could be some of it, you know? Yeah. As far as like some other side people in this movie that I wanted to point out, the detective guy, Detective Valento, is played by Gilbert Lewis. He was in a lot of old black exploitation stuff like Cotton Comes to Harlem and Across 110th Street. But I want to point out is that he was the original king of cartoons on Pee-wee's Playhouse. He got recast because the production moved from New York to L.A. And when they moved the show to L.A., they recast him with Blackula himself, William Marshall. <laughs> Great shit there. We literally go from Candyman, who is this very Dracula-like character, to actual Blackula in the same episode. Michael Culkin plays Purcell, the like British intellectual college professor guy, right? Guy who needed to die the most in this movie and somehow <laughs> did Born it. Born victim. Yeah. yeah. This was his debut film as well. 
Um, like I mentioned, he's in the sequel for the first like five minutes. He's <laughs> also in The Fifth Element. He's in a lot of TV, especially British TV. He's in The Iron Lady, The Crown, Bridgerton recently. We mentioned Ted Raimi. He does show up in this movie and immediately gets <laughs> fucking killed. <laughs> Although we didn't get to see his death. It's just implied that he died. Yeah. And the scene where Virginia Madsen has to be strip searched. The police woman. Oh, yeah. She was like, okay, how about we cast my best friend? And that way I'm at least relatively comfortable doing this scene with her. So Rusty Schwimmer is the name of that actress. She is another one of those that gal actresses that you've seen in tons of stuff. She's also in Highlander 2, The Quickening. But she's in Sleepwalkers. Jason Goes to Hell. She also has like a horror background. She's in Twister, The Perfect Storm. Most recently, she was in Better Call Saul, The Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, which I don't remember her being in that Mm. unless she was under a ton of makeup. Yeah. And she's currently on The Righteous Gemstones, which she's fucking hilarious on that show. And the last person I'll mention, and this is a complete what the fuck, but at the very beginning when Xander Berkeley is like doing his college lecture. And at the end, he's talking to the new girl that he's kind of into and three or four other students. There's that one kind of heavy set guy with the little fucking earring. That actor is Eric Edwards. Most people will recognize him as Pearl from Blade. He's the giant, fat, gross oh, yeah. vampire that's doing the computer shit, right? Oh, shit. Okay. He's under yeah, yeah. a shitload of makeup for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that must hurt. It's a fragment! A piece of the prophecy! What a prophecy? Oh, I'm not really sure. So many I recognize him most, though. This is trash stuff. He plays the fucking bully Murph in Problem Child 2 and Problem Child 3. Who let the baby into the sixth grade? What's in your bag? Your diapers? No, my lunch, you pinhead! Little kid doesn't know who he's talking to. Senior student in this school. Well, no shit, you've been here since 1970. Oh, you're gonna hurt! (laughs) (laughs) And that's just, like, burned in my head that that's who that actor is. That's awesome. So last thing I'll mention, because we're not gonna fucking ever mention it again, there are two sequels to this movie. I say two sequels because really the like Nia DaCosta movie is more of like a soft reboot continuation, whatever we want to call it. It's not really a remake, right? It is, I guess, a sequel. These are sequels. They don't really count because they're not whatever. They're the Halloween two through six. They don't really count now because we have Halloween 2018. Nah, this is, again, to go back to Hellraiser, this is more like Hellraiser 7 and 8 where like, oh, we're just doing this to keep the rights and one of them is not like a video game. There's Candyman Farewell to the Flesh. This came out in 95 and was directed by fucking Bill Condon, director of Gods and Monsters, Chicago, Dreamgirls, Twilight. Have you seen these, Kelly? I've seen two. I haven't seen three. Day of the Dead. Yeah, I haven't seen Day of the Dead. They just, didn't Vestron just re-release them all? So, Farewell to the Flesh was put out by Scream Factory. Okay. It was one of their weird catalog titles. It didn't get like a special edition treatment or anything like that. And it's out of print, so I don't really know how available that one is. Candyman 3, though, yes, that was just released by Vestron about a year ago. That's what I thought. It's in that second half of the Vestron catalog yeah. where it's very cheap and affordable. It's a $7, $8 Blu-ray. Yeah. 
So yeah, Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, is directed by fucking Bill Condon. <laughs> this is the one that's set in New Orleans and centers on the history of Daniel Robitaille, which again, was created for this fucking movie, that name, right? It's never even in the first movie. So it's about his murder and his family lineage, specifically his great-great-great-granddaughter played by Kelly Rowan. There's a fucking cursed mirror that holds a piece of his soul that has what? to be destroyed. Yeah. The biggest creative change that I dislike about this one is that they changed his story to he is now the son of a slave. And that was not the story that were told in the first movie, that he was a freed man who was educated, well-regarded artist, and all this other bullshit. The fact that they just kind of drug the character back down to say, like, oh, well, now he's just a slave. I don't know. That feels like a weird regression in a lot of ways. But that movie is. Talk about, like, some bad line readings. And some bad Nolan's accents. <laughs> Mon ami. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those where, like, every fucking time they're, like, out on the streets, it's always the fucking quarter, and there's always Mardi Gras parades or a second line. Like, yeah, that shit happens every day in New Orleans, apparently. Yeah, it's just all Gambit from X-Men animated series. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like Dracula 2000. It's exactly that. It's that <laughs> shit where, like, anytime that something's shot in New Orleans, it's got to be Mardi Gras, That's right? That, be. like, exact two weeks right there. Candyman 3, Day of the Dead, comes out in 99. This is directed by Turi Meyer, who did this movie called Sleep Stalker, which was very similar to Candyman in the premise, but is about a Sandman instead. He's now mostly like a TV producer. Anyway, this was direct to video. So that's the other disappointing thing is Candyman got one theatrical sequel and then immediately went DOV, right? This movie, for whatever fucking reason, is set canonically in the year 2020, which is funny, like in hindsight, that that's like so they yeah. got all that what? wrong, right? Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so this is starring Donna Dierico. And she is the now-grown child of the previous movie's protagonist, right? <sighs> like, the woman from hey. the last movie, like, <laughs> finds out at the end she's pregnant, and the movie ends with her and her new child, right? So this is now that child grown in the year 2020 for reasons, dot, dot, dot. She is now an artist living in L.A. She becomes focused on ending the Candyman and the curse on her family by destroying all of Robitaille's paintings, right? Some collector now has all of his paintings and is showing them off, and they're all cursed. So they turned him into Bagul from Sinister? <laughs> kind of. It's interesting that the Nia DaCosta movie kind of plays with some of this, and that the lead character in that movie is an artist, and he is a lot of how Candyman kind of runs the story is how he's channeling that stuff through the art, right? What's dumb about these two sequels is both of them involve destroying cursed items that belonged to Candyman. They both have white female protagonists. They're both framed for Candyman murders. And then they ultimately break the curse at the end, which how many times do you have to keep fucking breaking the same curse before this is all done, right? I don't know. The sequels are trash, and I really cannot wait. Sometime next year, like, I really want to jump on doing the 2021 Candyman. I mean, like, we're literally just now, right now, at the, like, two-year mark, which yeah. has always been kind of our arbitrary, 
we don't want to cover a movie until it's had at least two years to kind of live and breathe and all of us think about it and talk about it. And the Candyman sequel, the legacy sequel, is now past that mark. So, like, I really want to dig into that. But that is fully deserving of its own entire conversation. And we will certainly cover that later with you, Kelly. So I think that basically wraps up this movie. That was a lot. And we needed to talk a bit about this movie. In yeah. A and lot it, of ways. Like you said earlier, too. I mean, we really are scratching the surface. So many other people have talked about this movie. What else can be said? But it, I think it is also important to talk a lot about this movie. Yeah. Go watch the documentary Horror Noir that's on Shudder that is all about the history of black horror cinema. There's a whole chunk where they talk about Candyman. There are tons of people that have written about Candyman. I mean, there's all kinds of discussion about this movie in every way, shape, and form. So, like, I feel like I gave what I can bring, and that is what it is. But there's so much more to talk about with this movie at the end of the day. Thousand percent. This has always been one of my favorites. So I would very much recommend, like, if you have not seen this movie at this point, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Kelly, final thoughts? Yeah. To Candyman, no, it's just something that I think everybody needs to watch. For me, it's funny, the two or three, like, it's Candyman, and then it's, you know, it's Candyman 1992, and then Candyman 2021. And, like, I think with those two films, they give you so much and this is maybe not the right word, but there's just so much to it. But definitely, if you haven't seen Candyman 1992, you need to fucking watch it. Yeah, I also agree with them. I mean, hell, we didn't even really talk too much about just how brutal Candyman is, despite all of the poetic lines he's dropping, despite this seduction of Helen. He's fucking brutal, like beheads the dog, castrates a child, murders the fuck out of people, not just murder, like guts them, Again, going back to the beginning quote where he's like, I'm going to cut them from groin to gullet or something like that. Yeah, groin to gullet. Like, he is literal. That's not just cool-sounding threat. He literally does that. I mean, even just what we see of the doctor, he kills when she summons him on purpose. He is literally shoving the the hook somewhere in the guy's lower back and then moving it up, like pulling it out of his back. That is brutal. But all that aside, again, go watch it. It's an important piece of filmmaking, especially where we are now, especially in the U.S., but also like we have listeners abroad as well. Like if you are a fan of movies, especially horror, you have to watch Candyman if you haven't seen it already. And I now am super excited to do Nia DaCosta's 2021 Candyman because it sounds like it is a great next stepping stone up to where we need to be in the universe of this character. And I hope we get more Candyman going forward. It's like, yeah. All the other slashers, they have tons and tons of movies, and not all of them are good. In fact, a lot of them are bad. Usually with other slashers, it's really just the first one that's really good, and then the others are terrible. I already think he's there with all the slashers and his iconic status, but it'd be nice that he got more movies like they have more movies, if that makes sense. So I would love to see the Candyman legend further explored, especially in a modern lens, because I think there's a lot more that can be said, especially given what's happened uh, last few years cool so once again kelly thank you so much for joining us on this episode for our first season of spoop episode on a big one on 1992's Candyman. hell yeah thank you bro do you have any uh, socials you want it or any announcements you want to make or whatever uh, any work you want our listeners to go check out i actually do have an announcement i've done checkouts but like this is my first big announcement you know on the podcast hell yeah i have not directed anything 
or been in a director's chair since 2016. And we are officially in pre-production for now a month. Hell yeah. We are script locked in two weeks. And then we're going to do our breakdown and we're looking to start principal early next year. So Q1. But what's really awesome, and y'all are going to be proud of your boy, it is my first foray into the horror genre. So I am fucking excited because I think it has been a long time coming for how much of a, you know, an avid fan and just a lover of horror. But yeah, that's the big news. Things have happened in the last, I don't know, six months and... I think everything has just kind of culminated to this point, and creatively, I just feel like I'm ready. So, yeah, hell yeah, that's the big news. Yeah, I'm excited, guys. Congratulations, and we will definitely make sure to have you on when more news is available on that. So, yeah, awesome, and we'll of course provide links to you, our listeners, when we get them from you, Kelly, when stuff becomes available. Yep. But with that, we're Watch of Day or Horror Movie Podcast. You can find us at. All the available podcatchers at this time, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google, Podchaser, etc. Our main podcast website is on Podbean. That has all links, of course, to everything. Please continue to rate, review, and follow us, especially on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods. Those seem to be like the ones that get the most traffic for us. A thank you to those of you who already follow and have rated us. Five stars, please. We are at Watch of Dare on Twitter and Facebook for socials. We have a Spotify music playlist, and you can find that, of course, on our Facebook and as well, again, at our Podbean website. More importantly, we now have a Patreon. Yeah. We just did a whole foray into Hill House, and we went through Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House. It's excellent. We have two episodes out on that and an episode on the Shirley Jackson novel everything is based off of, plus over a dozen hours probably at this point of bonus content only five dollars a month gets you access to all the patreon bonus episodes so please consider joining spreading the word thank you to those of you who already are subscribed to it the more people we get that join more chance we will add new tiers including t-shirts and letting you our listeners pick future uh, movies for us to talk about so please again that is at patreon.com slash watch if you dare and the link Again, is pinned to our Twitter, Facebook, and is on our Podbean website. Shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for the music bumps at the beginning and end of each episode and our special season of spoof bump that uh, we're going to be using all through October. Yes, we know this one's a little early, end of September. It counts. It counts. (laughs) (laughs) They're already putting up Halloween decorations in fucking August. It counts. September is pre-Halloween, in my opinion, anyway. So yeah, check out Jesse's other work at party gator and Bandcamp. he's also with opossums and big clown please go check out his music and support him there um and i think that's it aaron do you have anything else you want to say i am the writing on the wall the whisper in the classroom without these things i have nothing so now i must shed innocent blood come with me be my sally be my sally (laughs) 